Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the FISA blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visabu.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, all one word as well, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content on our lowest subscriber tier. All access, you get those two additional shows and a lot of other goodies, including the monthly farm Zoom parties. I believe Keith, or one of our guests here tonight, I'll be introducing the second. We'll actually be hosting uh, the August one on the 17th, and it's bidding keeping with the theme with the show though it'll be a little bit more of a european outlook and uh it's gonna look at some popular mythos to be sure maybe the bit of the origins of the satanic panic and some other stuff in 19th century paris so it'll be a good one and there are a lot of other goodies on the all-access patreon so keep that in mind guys so all right i've got two guests joining me here both repeaters i've tipped the hand a little bit on one of them he is no stranger to regular listeners of the farm frequent guest here as well as being my research partner and an author of the forthcoming work on the world and communist league and he is also a fabulous musician in his own right be sure to check him out at Bandcamp and give some his work a listen you will not be disappointed folks i give you guys the great keith allen dennis keith thank you so much for dropping by tonight sir again um, I tried to get out the game and it pulled me back in, man. Here, here we are. It's good to be with you, Recluse. It's good to be with you as always, partner, too. I'm so excited. All right. The, day, uh, the other guest is also another repeater. He is the host of a little podcast called Program Chill, which some of you guys might have heard of. It explores business, crime, politics, and esoteric. Uh, folks, I could be the host of that great podcast, Jimmy Fallon Gong. Jimmy, thanks so much for dropping by again tonight as well, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I am always happy to be back on the farm. It's always a pleasure to have you, brother. All righty, we have got a great Can I show. say one thing before you go? Before you, before you go, y- you guys are both the hosts of my two favorite podcasts. And so this is like, this is awesome for me, just like on a personal level. Please oh. proceed. Thank you, sir. Well, that's great, Keith. We, uh, we appreciate that, man. Um, you're my favorite guest, buddy. So there you go. You're a great guy, too, man. I'm <laughs> definitely blessed to have you as a friend and all around uh, partner in crime on so much stuff. Uh, all right. So love fest then. <laughs> Right. All right, we've got a great show in store for you guys. Actually, this is uh, the third installment, uh, what has uh, become an ongoing series, I guess. Though. I haven't decided how many installments, but it would be a couple. The concept is simple, competing notions of America's past. Over the decades, a variety of groups have tried to craft their own founding mythos for this particular and peculiar nation. The Masons and the Mormons have done a lot in that regard. More recent years, white nationalists, even some black ones have gotten in the act. And of course, there was good old Hakeem Bey, who did quite a bit on it as well uh, in the counterculture. 
So the prior installment, though, was a barn burner involving Paul Stewart and I and the Masonic connections to the infamous Bale Papers and the arcane and Masonic body known as cryptic masonry. Keith here is going to pick up that thread and explore another Masonic ludbrium in 19th century America, possibly also related to the cryptic masons. Uh, so yeah, more adventures with all of that good stuff. And you know, for those of you just joining us, the first part went more into Hakeem Bay. Keith was there with us, along with the great Samuel Van Devar, alias Samuel Corwin of Corwin Trails. So yeah, we had a lot of fun unpacking some of the stuff with Hakeem Bay and Sam, who is working on a forthcoming biography of Adam Parfrey, a dear friend of his at one point, um, gave us some really interesting inside information on all that crowd as well. So if you guys haven't checked out this series before, definitely go up to speed. But anyway, before we get back to the Masons and some of the other stuff here, good old Jimmy is going to take us through Mormonism's not inconsiderable efforts to shape America's mythological past as well. And when I say inconsiderable efforts, that's really an understatement, quite frankly. It's one of the major purposes of the religion is to reorient uh, America's past for its own purposes. Uh Anyway, these schemes uh, go back to pretty much the Mormon schemes of this go back to the beginning of the religion itself, honestly, and are almost surely um, rooted in the, the theurgic origins of it, um, which I might get into here in a little bit. But um, anyway, there's some real doozies to be sure in terms of uh, Mormon forgeries and so forth. But we're going to use the Kinderhook story as a springboard. So let's get going on that sucker. All right. Okay, Jimmy. So. Give us the lowdown on Kinderhook. What was the whole thing about back in the day? All right. So I think personally, Kinderhook, the Kinderhook plates, uh, is an easier topic because it's smaller than just like the gold plates, right? And the founding myth, which <laughs> is a pretty broad topic. So you know, with that in mind, we're talking about the Kinderhook Plates hoax, which is very interesting. And to get started, I like to contextualize this. So like, you know, your average listener, I'm assuming is not Mormon, but probably knows some Mormons. So the average Mormon would probably only vaguely know about the Kinderhook Plates. I think the chance for knowing about it goes up uh, somewhat if the person that you know this hypothetical listener if the person they know like left the church there's a greater chance they've heard about the kinderhook plates but by and large this is like not terribly well known but it's not like super obscure either <clears throat> so depending on your perspective the kinderhook plates are either evidence of targeted harassment and deception to disprove the Mormon church, which had arguably happened several times before, or they are conclusive evidence that Joseph Smith was full of crap. Either way, or with both in mind, there is something really interesting going on with the Kinderhook plates. <clears throat> so it started with, it started with two men from Kinderhook, uh, <laughs> a store owner named Robert Wiley and a farmer named Wilburn Fugate, who had both encountered Mormon missionaries, and they thought that they didn't really like them. They were not particularly interested in what they had to say. This is in Illinois, by the way, Kinderhook, Illinois. And 
they would listen to the missionaries. You know, they weren't very far from Nauvoo, which was the big city that becoming a big city that uh, the Mormons founded. And so they'd listen to the missionaries and they caught upon a particular phrase that the missionaries would say that truth would spring up, sorry, truth would spring up out of the earth. And they're like, hmm, because the missionaries would say that in the context of like the Book of Mormon came from the earth. It was, you know, plates buried, translated. It was likely that future archaeological evidence would vindicate them as they saw it. And so these two guys, Wiley and Fugate, they both were like, interesting. That sounds like it could be some poetic justice. So they planned a practical joke. So what they did was they brought in a local blacksmith, Bridge Witten, and they created six of these interesting, weird brass plates. I would encourage your listeners to pause and just Google Kinderhook plates. It comes right up. They're sort of like these brass plates that are in the shape of like bells, sort of. And they're there's like this vaguely hieroglyphic writing on them engraved within onto the plates. So Fugate, he wrote, Bridge went and cut the plates out of some copper. Wiley and I made the hieroglyphics by making impressions on beeswax and then filling them with acid and putting it on the plates. When they were finished, we put them together with rust made of nitric acid old iron and lead and bound them with a piece of hoop iron, covering them completely with rust. Then they secretly buried the Kinderhook plates in an Indian mound near Kinderhook. Then a different group of guys, mostly unwitting men, publicly dug up these Kinderhook plates in April of 1843. I think there's actually you know, rumors that they also found like a skeleton and they found some other stuff, but that's somewhat disputed. So this got right into the local newspapers. And so that we have, you know, these articles in June of 1843, which included like facsimiles, like, you know, not pictures, but like, you know, reproductions in these newspapers. And a local newspaper called the Quincy Whig laid the bait for the Mormon church. They said, some pretend that Smith, the Mormon leader, has the ability to read them. And that if he, and they said, if he did, it would prove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. The trap has been laid, right? So the Kinderhook plates, such as they are, the actual, like, uh, uh, recluse, I forget. Uh, art, what was it artifake? I think that's what you guys said. I artifake. thought that was great. <laughs> so these artifacts, the Kinderhook plates, were brought over to Nauvoo. You know, not very far away, and someone showed them to Joseph Smith. Now, <laughs> the Mormon newspaper in Nauvoo said that the discovery of the Kinderhook plates clearly gave credibility to the Book of Mormon story. Now, we have Joseph Smith's secretary, William Clayton's account, where he wrote, you know, essentially what Joseph Smith said. 
I have seen six brass plates covered with ancient characters of language covering from 30 to 40 on each side of the plates. Joseph Smith has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found and that he was a descendant of Ham through the loins of the Pharaoh king of Egypt and that he received his kingdom through the ruler of heaven and earth, unquote. <clears throat> now, reportedly, Joseph Smith attempted to translate them using normal translation methods rather than through revelatory translation methods. You know, that gets into the whole Book of Mormon translation, quote unquote. But the LDS church, for what it's worth, disputes that Joseph Smith translated anything at all. What? It's well, what? they I just say all... that he didn't translate it, and that the um, the personal secretary who wrote that passage I just read was taking liberties and just paraphrasing what Joseph Smith thought. That's the church stance. You were saying you you you're talking about this in particular, not anything at all, like ever. Oh yeah, world. no, that they, that he didn't translate anything with regards to the Kinderhook plates. Right, right okay. Mm -hmm. It was like uh, Book of Moses, but you know, Doctrine. I don't know. Anyway, you were yeah. saying, sir. Sorry for the interruption. No worries. I mean, translation is even not exactly the right word for the Book of Mormon. Were that what he were doing anyway? But nevertheless. Yeah. So what's interesting is that it wasn't just Joseph Smith, though. Like. A lot of church leadership saw the Kinderhook plates. Brigham Young, most notably, also handled the plates. Just like, damn, look at that. That's crazy. Now, what's super interesting is that nobody knows what happens to the Kinderhook plates. It's not known whether the church still has them, which maybe, maybe they do. It's not clear whether they went back into the hands of the guy who discovered them and that he, you know, it, nobody knows where these things went. And that's like weird and interesting, right? <clears throat> also, what's curious is that because the church didn't fully like fall for the trap, nobody revealed it as a hoax for over a decade. So like, it's just like this weird thing that like church members didn't really feel like was like a great gotcha as good evidence, but on the flip side, like it doesn't look good either, but it's like weirdly inconclusive, if that makes sense. It would, so this whole thing happens in 1843, right? It wouldn't be revealed that the Kinderhook plates were a hoax until 1855. And then it wouldn't become more widely known until 1879 when one of the guys who actually made the plates wrote a letter to Brigham Young. Now, one of the guys... Interesting, because it shades yeah. a bit of like the Bale papers as well, because mm -hmm. they didn't become more widely known until like what a good like 30, 40 years or something like after they were originally published, if I'm not mistaken. Right? It's weird because like if you put a lot of effort, because like by all accounts, they put a lot of effort into making them look like real artifacts. And like, I don't know if they were just like waiting for the church to do something and, or, but like, it's weird to me that you would have that much patience, you know? It's just interesting. 
Yeah, um, no, because um, yeah, the bail papers were originally kind of issued, I think, in the aftermath of the Civil War, but they didn't really start to gain a lot of um, attention, I think, until like around the World War One era. So, yeah, it's, uh, again, you know, for those of you who hadn't listened to the prior installments of Paul Stewart and I discussed the bail papers at length in the second installment of this series. So just, you know, again, it's, it's interesting how it... And sometimes I wonder too, I mean, if some of this stuff we're going to talk about was almost designed to piggyback on the other thing, just the way that they're issued and so forth. It's it's just, it's weird. There's no way else to describe it. Yeah, it's weird to think that someone would make, or like, it's weird to think that someone would like go to such lengths to make an artifact in the first place. And then like, no matter how you slice it, it's weird. Not, and I'm not necessarily necessarily saying it's good or bad, but it's weird to put this much effort into making a trap to try to make the church look bad. On the flip side, of course, it's weird that the church <laughs> didn't exactly come out looking good either, right? <clears throat> but uh, yeah, go ahead. Do you have anything else on the kinderhook thing? Uh, just a few more things, like oh. one of the guys who made the kinderhook plates said that he intended it as a joke and he did not frame it as an elaborate trap to disprove the church and the kinderhook residents who were in on it didn't think that joseph smith would even be shown the kinderhook plates so like there is a degree of deniability that you know they didn't think that it would even go that far in the first place on the flip side the newspapers bait, baiting Joseph Smith does raise some questions as to whether it was coordinated or not. It's inconclusive in my mind, but it is interesting that the Mormon church did not admit that the Kinderhook plates were a forgery until 1981, which is pretty late uh, to finally you know give yeah that is head. interesting that they waited to like over a century or something like that <laughs> it was kind of like they were keeping that like in their back pocket almost just in case you know there was ever like a moment where they could maybe play it and be like oh it really is real like see, you know, who knows yeah they got, they, got the hotline to, they got the hotline to god man maybe they were just on hold for a long time <laughs> so right. yeah, that, that's it with the kinderhook plates basically all right, well, let's get into a subject then that is uh, long-time listeners and readers of the Visa blog are well aware of uh, a subject I'm very passionate about, and that is Native American mounds. So, Jimmy, you've already brought them up a little bit here with the Kinderhook thing. Can you get a bit into the Mormon take on these things and other perspectives during the 19th century, sir? Absolutely. So, it's funny. We were talking off mic about the Mormon Institute or think tank for archaeological research and it's actually called farms which is funny <laughs> and, and yes so we will be talking about it in a future installment especially when they tell us about farms or it's just like there's no way we can't address have it. to <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's funny because like when i was like i want to say like 12 to 14 or something reading farm stuff was like my favorite thing like i was all about it so like some of this is like I had to refresh a little bit because I don't really follow or care about Mormon apologetics anymore, but like this used to be my thing. So I, I have read a lot of it. 
so to make it pretty clear, like the Mormon take on the mounds was that they vindicated the Book of Mormon, right? So you kind of touched on it, but like competing notions of America's past, like the entire Mormon project is a competing notion of America's past, like start to finish, you know, it's saying that like these ancient cultures <laughs> were different groups in the Book of Mormon. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that in some ways, it can, this can sound pretty convincing, right? Especially if you roll back the clock to like the 19th century, when this was, you know, the, the new thing. Because with regard to the mound builders, right? Like generally accepted, like archaeological understanding is that there were, there was an ancient culture to, in fact, that built these mounds, right? The Adena and the Hopewell. And wouldn't you know- Hopewell and Adena, right? Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know, in the Book of Mormon, there are in fact, not one, but two different groups, you know, that supposedly came over from, you know, the Middle East and, you know, rose and fell as civilizations. So like going into it, some of these truth claims of the Book of Mormon vaguely match up with some of the Native, Native American mound builder discoveries that they were very much still making at the time that the Book of Mormon first appears. And like, it is interesting, right? Because like the Adena, for example, appear to have been active. The general like dates are like 800 BC to around like 1 AD, which like, damn, like, what a, you know, interesting time for the civilization to collapse, because that, I'm not saying this, but like, the Book of Mormon has a civilization collapsing around the same exact time. On the flip side, the Hopewell were active from around 100 BC to 500 AD. Both cases line up with a Book of Mormon narrative, loosely, right? And it is interesting too that a lot of this scholarship and research on both of on both of the cultures, the Adena and the Hopewell, came after the publication of the Book of Mormon. So there's only a narrow, limited amount that Joseph Smith could have absorbed beforehand. He certainly could have and did probably absorb idea like general ideas from Indian stories and societal collapses and so on. But like you gotta admit that he must have gotten pretty lucky if he was totally guessing on the one hand. <clears throat> Personally, I'm completely agnostic on this question. I am certainly not evangelizing on the part of the church. Growing up, I was always very partial to the idea that the Book of Mormon actually took place in Central America, not North America for the most part, but that's neither really? here nor I, I, there. You know something, I might have something for you on this, sir, if I could just interject here for a moment um obviously the mormons were not the only group um that were interested in the mounds there's been quite a few um orders uh, religious movements and so forth that have adopted them over the years and their cosmology and their mythos uh for this nation anyway uh one of the 
first groups is a group that we've been talking about a lot lately on the farm, which we'll continue to talk a lot more about because trust me, even though I know some of you guys might be a little sick of me bringing them up, but there's so much interesting stuff with this group and it is called the Society of Cincinnati. Mm. And it was a essentially America's first chivalric order, a higher a hereditary order that was uh, founded by veterans of uh, the uh, the Continental Army from the American Revolution. It was uh, headed initially by George Washington himself, who remained the president until the time of his death. And the Cincinnati also did a major part of perpetuating the cult of Washington throughout the country and a lot of other things. Of course, if you heard uh, the episode I did on the Society of Cincinnati or the uh, most recent installment in this one. We talked a bit about the Society at the end of that with Paul Stewart and uh, some of their stuff that they were involved in as well at that point uh, in terms of with masonry and the Illuminati and that kind of thing. So they're a really interesting group that a lot of people don't hear much about. And another thing about them that I will be getting into in a future installment on the series I'm doing in the Society of Cincinnati is their interest in the mounds. And they had a very special relationship with them, uh, as I'm sure many of you could have guessed, because many of the Cincinnati were instrumental in uh, settling what was uh, initially the Northwestern Territories. This was actually the kind of early American West, even because this is what we had before the Louisiana Purchase that Jefferson made. It was the Northwestern Territory that uh, consisted mainly of the Ohio Valley and a lot of the areas around the Great Lakes region in uh, Michigan and uh, Illinois, Indiana, and uh, parts of Wisconsin, I think a little bit of Iowa and that kind of thing. But anyway, this this whole area uh, was absolutely awash in mounds and... um, the Society of Cincinnati had quite an interest in them. They were actually one of the first people to really study them firsthand. And um, as I had written in, um, I think this is actually up publicly on the BISA blog. It's in the dispatches uh, from the cult Cincinnati section. Uh, when I, or maybe, yeah, yeah, from one of the sections. I can't remember if it's the first or third installment. Uh, it might be up publicly. If not, it's definitely on the Patreon thing. Uh, another one of the perks from it. But anyway, I get into a bit of um, the genealogy of a very interesting woman. Um, she, uh, gosh, I can't remember her name now off the top of my head, but she was married to a fellow called William Morgan, who touched off the anti-Masonic movement uh, after he... Oh, had- Pendleton, right? Yes, yes, I not get into that, Jimmy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now she touched. He touched off the anti-Masonic movement uh, when he had threatened to expose the secrets of Masonry. Uh, turned up mysteriously dead, and his former wife became one of the plural wives of our boy Joseph Smith here. And it just so happens this woman was part of the Pendleton family, who were hereditary members of the Society of Cincinnati and the major branch of the Pendleton family were based out of the city of Cincinnati. In fact, uh, they were interred at that lovely cemetery that Keith and I recently visited there at Spring Grove. So this woman was from a hereditary family of the Society of Cincinnati who did have a keen interest in the mounds and um, family was active in that whole Edina, you know, uh, or the area that was really prolific for the Adena and the Hopewell in that Ohio Valley region. So 
who knows, Jimmy? Um, maybe, you know, they had some access to uh, some of the records that the Cincinnati had uh, accumulated, especially since I think there were a few other early Mormons that had been hereditary members of the society as well. Um, that's actually something they've been uh, kind of looking into a little bit here and there because it, um, you've kind of alluded to, it would make for some very interesting connections, certainly, sir, in terms of some of uh, Joseph Smith's uh, seemingly inside baseball knowledge about the mounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been following the order of the Cincinnati stuff that you've been putting out because I'm very interested because it's a group that like, I feel like people hear about, but I didn't know what they actually did. So I'm I'm following oh, with great only scratched the surface too, man. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to be some juicy stuff with that in the future. But um, anyway, I don't want to like get too sidetracked. Or do you got anything else on the mounds on the Mormons or just general perspectives in the 19th century on them? Yeah, just a couple more things, I think. Um, so it's interesting, right? Because you point out the whole Ohio region. And like, I know just from history, right, that the United States, such as it is, the first war, though undeclared that, you know, the country got into was essentially against the Indian nations of the Ohio. And <laughs> that there was essentially a series of small scale like wars to basically push the native tribes out from Ohio. And there were, of course, probably like the most amount of mounds in Ohio or something comparable to that, right? It's just a very interesting place that actually that group would be there too, what I've right? heard it's southern Wisconsin and just based on my travels there, I can definitely confirm there's a lot of mounds there. And from what I understand, I think originally it was estimated that there were something like 15 to 20,000 in just the southern Wisconsin region when, um, you know, they started to settle it uh, as part of the Northwestern Territories. I mean, it's... I was shocked, you know, because I followed this subject for years and I, I really had never looked into it in Ohio. It was, or excuse me, Wisconsin. It was only really after I was driving around there and I'm like, oh, well, I mean, there's, I mean, I've been through the Ohio Valley. I've been in West Virginia and I've never seen mounds like this. This is insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was going to say to just in terms of your listeners, so the official church position is that there is no official position on where specifically in the Americas the Book of Mormon took place, which on the one hand is probably a strategically smart, smart move because it allows for a wide spread out and deniable quantum state where archaeological findings can always vindicate but never fully disprove the Book of Mormon, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit of having your cake and heads I win, too. tails you lose. <laughs> mm -hmm. So my understanding is that Mormonism's claims in some ways are similar to that of Freemasonry <laughs> about Freemasonry's history, right? Which is to say you make very bold claims that are all over the place and then you look into some of them being right. And Lord knows we see occultists doing this about their own spiritual lineages, right? Yeah. 
No, I mean, it's it, 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 it really yeah, just the name of the game. Because, I mean, you see, especially like when you know you're kind of talking about like the Mormons or the Society of Cincinnati or some of the uh, the groups that initially ended up, you know, settling the region, like in Wisconsin. I mean, almost all of these groups, you know, kind of trace back to a lot of these, you know, um, Yankee, uh, Austin, New York. Uh, kind of areas and i mean a lot of these just really you know aristocratic families and so forth and just again a lot of this sort of uh, strange you know like fringe religious movements that sprang up around a lot of these groups as well you know it is a odd thing how they then would start pressing westward and they always seem to turn up around like these bloody mounds and it's the same kind of weird you know, spiritual movements again and again and again. It's a, it's quite a fascinating. I, you know, I, I, my God, that's that's tough because I really want to hear more of what Jimmy has to say, but I'm like really want to just say something really bad. So just let me real quick go for uh, it. That when I think when I think about the the Mormons, like there, you know, there's probably a lot of differences between you know Joseph Smith and like Jesus or Muhammad or whatever but one of the biggest ones i'm sorry joe you know those guys jesus and muhammad they didn't have newspaper men following them around you know or or, <laughs> or auditing them or let's see what's under the layer of silver coins on your chest of coins for the bank you're going to start they didn't have people trying to prank them with kinderhook shenanigans and so they didn't have to make claims about making no claims. And it's just somewhere in the general area of North America is where it happened. Joseph Smith had newspaper men following him around, waiting to play gotcha with him. Jesus didn't. There you go. Yeah, no, definitely I, well yeah. said. Um, but I mean, again, it's like, I, I kind of think, though, I mean, the kits is like what gives it its distinctly like American characteristic. I mean, you know, I mean, I know I rag on Mormonism a ton on this show, but I mean, I do find it fascinating. And I do think um, gosh, Michael Quinn, I believe, is the, the guy I'm thinking of off the top of my head was on to something when he described it as kind of a... Uh, an American Gnosticism, because it very much is. I mean, it, you know, as again, as I was looking oh, yeah. earlier, it very much grew out of like theology and a lot of these other practices near Platonism and so forth that were very closely tied to Gnosticism. So it's really spot on. And I mean, it is kind of fascinating how it has this sort of high magical side on the one hand, but then there's almost this like Barnum circus kind of aspect on the like kind of lower side of it as well which again is you know what i think it kind of makes it so fascinating in a lot of ways as well so yeah no recluse like it's funny because like <laughs> i think i told you on one of the other episodes we did together but like growing up mormon and then reading about both gnosticism and ceremonial magic it was kind of like that meme of spider-man pointing at spider-man where it's just like wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> if you get what i'm saying <laughs> yeah 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 it was like when i was just you know recently on um true anon talking about the um the sra allegations in utah and i was just like well i i, I think the, the stuff that they're talking about with the satanic stuff is nonsense but i mean to be perfectly honest you know if there's 
one of the areas of the country I could actually see just weird ritualistic stuff like that happening, it would be Utah just because of the peculiar history of Mormonism and its legacy and stuff like theurgy and things like that. Because I mean, you know, again, not all theurgy is involved in dark stuff, but as um the great Peter Mark Adams uh very uh uh, definitely argues in uh, the gates of Saturn. Um, there is this certainly hints at a very dark side to it uh, that could involve some of this very, uh, you know, nefarious stuff that uh, Christian fundamentalists like to speculate on. But this would be, I think, closer to maybe the real thing. And um, because of that peculiar history, and I mean, certainly the fact that I'm sure there are you know, people within Mormonism who, you know, maybe got a little fanatical about researching the roots of it and started to make connections about some of this stuff, saw that you could, you could do some really weird stuff with these practices. So, yeah, there's just a lot of these strange components to it, which again makes its, you know, interest also in shaping like America's mythos so fascinating as well to boot. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I probably sidetracked the tail here a little bit too much, but Jimmy, why don't you get into your LeBaron story for us, bro? All right. So <clears throat> when I was a Mormon missionary, that's right. Picture in your mind's eye, white shirt, tie, the whole nine yards. I was out doing my thing. It's with my companion. So two of us, right. And we're just knocking doors, going door to door classic mormon missionary stuff we knock on this door and this guy answers and he's like yeah come on in and you know like i don't know if you guys have ever done any like door-to-door sales or something but like doing that in the first place is kind of like walking through a field with a bunch of landmines because like you never ever know yeah it is the most awkward thing because yeah like you said i mean some people are like really you know interested to talk into to you some people want to punch you in the face i mean it's just and then there's any number of reactions in between those two extremes it's just it's really a weird thing i'm sure it's even odder when you're like trying to sell religion as opposed to like perfume or something like that yeah or when they would knock on my door i would pull out my copy of early mormonism in the magical worldview and start going off about, did you know that you're, this was Harry Potter that started your church, bro? What's up? Yeah. And so like, if, you know, someone's like, yeah, come on in. You're like, okay, there's like a 30% chance this person is just a Mormon. And there's like a 30% chance this person wants to hear what you have to say. Then a 30% chance this person is going to yell at you for some reason. And then like a, you know, there's like a extra 3% for who knows what else, right? So like, we go right in there and, you know, we sit down and start talking to this guy and this guy is like super weird. Like, you you never like just, well, I'm sure both of you know because of who you are and what you do, but like... Some people you just, you know, yeah, the feel Lebarans, that by weird. the way, like, um, you know, again, for those of you who haven't uh, followed this subject, um, probably the most notorious member is a guy named Erville LeBaron, who had the well-earned moniker of the Mormon Manson. Um, around 35 to 40 murders have been attributed to him and his family cult. Um, actually, like Manson, I think almost all of the murders were committed by his followers, and especially his wives and not uh, Erville himself. So 
himself and the killings also continued well after he died all the way up Ervo had died around 81 I think and then they continued all the way up until like 88 uh, but the Laverans are still at the you know the height of notoriety in a lot of ways especially um, in Mexico which is really where their power base has long been uh, they had their own little kind of compound there, Colonia La Baron. And of course, um, they were the family that were involved in the 2019 incident in which um, I think it was 17 uh, women and children were attacked by a cartel and virtually all them were murdered. Uh, some of the kids were like burned alive. Of course, this came after an ongoing years of dispute that the LeBarons had had with the cartels and they weren't exactly innocent bystanders. They had been trafficking arms and they had brought the Mexican military out. Um, it's a wonderful Vice documentary called the uh, Mexican Mormon War, I believe, on this subject uh, where you can see one of the members of the LeBaron family go uh, on camera and say how the family, casually discuss how the family uh, talked about killing 10 cartel members for every LeBaron that they killed. So um, there's- So wait, is this, you talking about Jimmy, you, you, uh, you knocked on one of these people's doors back yeah, in the yeah. day? Yeah, yeah. And also the LeBarons yeah. were tied in with Nexium too. They, I just want to point out, they were supplying girls to Keith Ranieri, too. That was another one of their endeavors during this prior uh, decade. So yeah, this is the this is the LeBarons for those of you who are unfamiliar with them. Um, and this is LeBaronism, folks. So yeah, this is the, the family that Jimmy's talking about. By the way, uh, Recluse, I don't know if you saw that the Sally Denton book uh, about you know, know what the LeBaron just like came that. out. No, it's about the uh, LeBarons and the. Oh, she has a book on the LeBarons. Oh my god, I gotta get that right. Just right came now. out. <laughs> yeah, I'm like halfway through it right now. It's interesting, but <clears throat> I mean, so I meet this guy. He's a, a LeBaron. So like, I forget his first name. Lord knows, it's you know, this is just a random guy, right? But like, he's like, I'm, you know, so-and-so LeBaron. And I'm like, I kind of like look and I'm like, my like companion, that's, you know, the term for my, you know, partner, he doesn't know anything. So like, he didn't know that what the LeBarons were. So it's like, just me and the guy who are just like, oh, oh, you're like a LeBaron. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And so, you know, I'm like, hey, so like, you, you know about the church, blah, blah, blah. And like, I kid you not, almost apropos of nothing, like almost no lead in, he starts telling me that he has personally seen giant mummies buried and recovered in Utah. Like I want to say around Manti, Utah, for those who know Utah. And I'm just like, oh, you saw some giant mummies, huh? Oh, okay. And so I'm like, okay, like we got to get out of here. This guy might literally shoot us for one thing. And two, like <laughs> this guy's not getting baptized, <laughs> you know? So basically I got out of there and, you know, I didn't even think that much of it at the time, but like looking back, I was just like, what the hell, man? Like I met a LeBaron and very, very strange stuff. Yeah, to put it mildly, and I'm pretty sure I know the um, the LeBaron that you're talking about. I think he was a part of, like, Urville's extended family. Like, I mean, uh, more direct, <clears throat> I mean, more a member of his direct family, I should say. Like, he wasn't, um, you know, like a distant cousin or something like that. Like, I believe he was actually, like, a uh, part of, like, that main cult 
tied around like the church of the firstborn or whatever it was initially but i can't remember off the top of my head don't hold me to that but yeah that that's just really weird man <laughs> i was gonna say totally unrelated but doing the same thing going door to door i accidentally knocked into a former bodyguard for james mason <laughs> you meet some crazy people going door to door i tell you what i can imagine i'm glad only he did it for like i think a week or two before i uh, was like uh no this just is not for me <laughs> nope <laughs> all right so size matters right guys so jimmy why don't you tell us a, a bit about peter lavinda says about giants and native american mounds and then ask me what you wanted to ask if you can remember that so we were kind of struggling to get to that but i think it was something in regards to the whole premise of there being giants in the mounds or something like that yeah cool so i'll go through some stuff <laughs> listeners of my show know that i'm perpetually just completely like I have no, uh, like, I'm always reading Peter Lavenda and just being like, what on earth is he talking about and why? So, like, in his amazing series, Sinister Forces, in the first volume, he, Peter Lavenda, goes through a long list of anomalous archaeological findings in North America. Essentially, Lavenda is arguing in favor of the diffusionist theory of cultural exchange among the Native American cultures. The goofy version would be that like ancient Romans or ancient Phoenicians or ancient Vikings came over and they became, or ancient Israelites came over and became the Native Americans. But the more nuanced, the more nuanced and more realistic version is that the, the native tribes interacted with like maybe occasionally a Roman ship or like a Phoenicians maybe there was more Viking exchange than we realize. Maybe the Chinese made it at some point, you know? So like there's, you know, a less crazy version of this diffusionist theory, because my understanding is that the generally taught version in schools of where the native Americans came from is like, they came over in the land bridge, you know, over Alaska, like 10,000 years ago. And that's it. There was no interaction until Columbus basically. And Lavenda, for <laughs> occult reasons, I'm sure, essentially supports the diffusionist theory, which is that other cultures interacted with Native American tribes. And for Mormons, of course, they like the diffusionist evidence because it could at least point to something that could theoretically vindicate the Book of Mormon to that end, Mormons have always been on the lookout for evidence that would suggest diffusionist theories. Now, that said, separate from Mormonism, there are, in fact, a lot of really anomalous archaeological findings in North America that point not just in one direction, but in many directions, especially regarding the mounds people, the mound peoples. And like, to be sure, you know, we've talked about this. It wasn't just the Mormons that were, you know, interested in the mound people. It was like everyone, every, all of the Anglo settlers, you know, in the Americas were interested in who these mound people were. Where did they go? And like, to be sure, a lot of these archaeological findings, some of them are probably hoaxes. 
I know that you've mentioned a couple, you know, in previous episodes, at least in passing, but like the idea that all of these are hoaxes is, you know, hard to believe. Then again, I did, you know, we did open the episode with a very elaborate archaeological hoax. So like, for sure, this does happen. So (laughs) it just raises a lot of questions, right? And like, related to this, there is a frankly strange frequency with which certain controversial artifacts get lost. (laughs) The more controversial an artifact is, weirdly enough, the more likely it is to go missing, which is just you know, bizarre. <clears throat> now, in terms of, you know, the mounds, you know, I'm just going over in general, there's estimated to be like over 100,000 or more of these mounds in the continental US. Frequently, the mounds have buried remains in them. Frequently, they are aligned in some way astronomically. Frequently, they find works of art. Sometimes there's even evidence that there were formerly large cities in the region, right? And what's interesting is that the generally accepted history, like archaeologists and historians believe that the Indian mounds were not constructed by the tribes of Native Americans that were found, you know, hundreds of years later. Which is not to say that they were not related at all. Definitely, like, I think everybody believes that the native tribes that you could find at the time were related in some way to the mound builders. But it's interesting, right? Because a lot of the mound built, like, a lot of the Native Americans themselves talked about how there were older tribes that had disappeared. And some of them had stories as to why, some didn't. But there is this, like, disconnect between the existing tribes and these mound builders, which is very interesting. You know, we talked about the Adena and the Hopewell, and there was some overlap between the two. But what's interesting is that Lavenda identifies different findings of plumed serpent motifs in Adena sites. You know, that pretty naturally raises questions as to whether there was like Aztec influence or vice versa. They also found obsidian, which generally is, you know, sourced down in Mexico. So there's also this idea that there was just far more trade within the continental U.S. than is generally understood also. Now, you know, I'm not going to read all of these different findings, but, uh, you know, Lavenda lists off, for instance, that Cotton Mather, the Salem witch trials guy, was extremely interested in the mounds so it pretty much goes back to as soon as like anglo settlers got to the u.s they were poking around and being like damn what are these mounds all about george washington was very interested in the mounds thomas jefferson was he actually chartered a scientific excavation of a particular mound in 1781 Uh, One of his secretaries of the treasury was at one point the, you know, most influential person in U.S. government who insisted on excavating the mounds. William Henry Harrison, the president, you know, who died (laughs) after like a month, he was very interested in the mounds. You know, can can I jump in here and say one Mm -hmm. thing real quick? I'm, I'm loving all this, by the way. I, I used to be on this tip with the diffusionist thing. 
And um, well, two things. One, Thor Heyerdahl and those guys that did the Contiki expeditions in, I think it was the 50s, wrote a book called Contiki. It was all about proving that this diffusion from old world to new was possible. And because of the ocean currents in the Atlantic, you know, the basically the, the hypothesis was with a good boat and good weather, you could get from the old world to the new on purpose. And with a bad boat, you could get there on accident. So sporadic contact, accidental contact, absolutely. Sustained contact between old world news, another thing, you know. But what I really wanted to say was, you know, you're talking about all these mounds. And as soon as these, these European dudes get here, they see these mounds and, and thus begins 400 years of speculation about what were they really about? What, what was it? What was the point? Where did they go? How come the Native Americans we talked to don't know anything? Um, it just becomes a blank canvas upon which different groups, uh, it's a battlefield upon which different groups can struggle for America's past and the narrative around it, which is what this whole series is about. Oh, Please yeah. continue, sir. Definitely. No, it is a crazy amount of projection for sure. <laughs> um, let's see here. So there are also related to this tons, way more newspaper reports than you would ever imagine about like in the late 1800s of people finding skeletons that would have been, were they real, seven or eight feet tall found in these burial mounds and caves. And in one case, they supposedly found a stone sarcophagus. <laughs> There's a report of finding blonde mummies in Tennessee and Kentucky, which was reported on in the 12th annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology in 1894. <laughs> like, there's so Rock many newspapers boat. of like finding mummies and finding like big mummies. It's really weird, actually. You were saying, Keith? Oh, I was just saying, you know, Aryan, seven foot tall Aryan mummies <laughs> are mysteriously found in Indian mounds. And it's just well, like, uh oh, here we, here, if here I we could go. If I object here, too, I also have to uh, question Lavenda on this point. And this is one of the points, too, that I would urge people when you're doing this kind of research. We sort of found this out actually during the first installment when we were going through the going to Croton book and uh, the mm. premise around the Ben Ishmael tribe. and I had casually asked Keith if he had actually looked at any of the sources cited to check out and make sure all of them were real and verifiable and so forth, which he had not done, which nope. based on what I've seen, maybe some questions about that, but... Um, and like, I for can't... sure, none of these are cited, by the well, way. No, no, he does cite, for instance, the claim about um, the Adena uh, being of an abnormal size and them, being, them finding uh, skeletons of that in uh, some of the mounds. And the source that he gives for that is a book uh, called The Adena People, which was written by a pair of authors, um, Webb, here, Doctor, or by William S. Webb and Charles Snow. 
So anyway, and this was published at the University of Tennessee Press. I got a copy of this book because, uh, you know, I got so into mounds. I wanted to make sure I was going back as much as I could with the sources and looking at some of these records. And um, been through this book quite a few times, and it uh, confirms a lot of the stuff that Lavinda says in terms of like the decapitated heads and the um, the deformities done to the skulls to get the cones and some of the weird you know shapes the burials and so on and so forth but mm. nothing in here about the Adena being of an abnormal size in fact they address the topic of the long time claims of the Adena being of an abnormal size and they actually say that there is no real evidence of that that they were fairly regular sized in terms of like the other tribes and so forth in the area there were no real instances of you know seven foot tall or eight foot tall skeletons found as far as they had seen in the records so uh lavenda's not correct on that source which he cites i could find no claim of that at all in the book and i've been through it quite a few times as i've said so and um, wouldn't you know a lot of the newspapers that reported finding giant mummies, you know, generally couldn't produce the giant mummies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do feel like the giant, and again, I haven't looked at this a lot, but based on the stuff that I've seen on the Adena, which are, you know, this is a claim commonly associated with them. There's not a lot of solid evidence for this. Um so yeah, it, it's, it's, this is one of these aspects of this that I do think you've got to really be um, very skeptical of folks because there is a lot of dubious stuff put out about it. And again, this plays into just the whole you know obsession with things like the Nephilim being here, which I know is something you wanted to get into at some point, Jimmy. So, um, but let's see here. It's an alternative to that. So there's an alternative to that methodology, though, which is you could just uh, dispense altogether with, you know, rigorously checking sources and having any kind of academic rigor whatsoever and just say, I'm here for the poetry. It sounds cool. So I'm going to go with it. And I don't care what the truth is. Uh, this is 2022 and it's choose your own reality. So I'm just saying. Well, again, that's actually almost the whole thing with like theurgy, because you see like the whole of creation is kind of a divine myth that's like playing out in the stars, right? So like the microcosm reflects the macrocosm. So you got to play the divine myth out, you know, the material realm, Keith. And I kind of feel like that's what they're, they're trying to do is play out that divine myth on the material realm, bro. You got to. Yeah. So, so who are these academic you? eggheads to get in their way? Get out of the way. They're trying to manifest something, bro. Exactly. Be giants, brother. Be giants. <sighs> All right, Jimmy. You got anything else in the mounds, bro? Yeah, a few more things. So, go. I mean, I'll go through it pretty quick. But so, Lavenda cites Adina mounds where they supposedly found Phoenician writing. Uh, several of those. Then there's, you know, different mounds where they supposedly found hieroglyphics. Lord knows the Mormons love when they find hieroglyphics. <laughs> and then ancient Hebrew, oh, even more so. If you can find some ancient Hebrew in some mounds, oh yeah, Mormons are going to eat that up. Uh, there's the Los Lunas stone, which I know you actually explicitly mentioned in one of the earlier episodes, right? I think. I want to say. 
I don't know. That was that was the one where they supposedly found the Ten Commandments written I've in Hebrew. To, I've been to that stone. I've actually seen it. Tell us about it. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that more in a, in a later episode. But it, okay, it's another nineteenth. It's, it's supposedly nineteenth century. Uh, it was when it was discovered, and um, you know it's 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 supposed to be the Ten Commandments. And, and nice. it is, and it checks out. But, you know, if you look at pictures of it, you can see off to the either side of it, you know, spiral petroglyphs and, you know, fig- figures and things that are, uh, uh, you know, petroglyphs uh, from the actual Native Americans that are probably seven to 900 years old. And you can just tell by looking at them that they look a lot more old and weathered and faded, you know. Yeah, as opposed to their comparatively new, you know, brand spanking new, you know, inscriptions, and people said stuff. Oh, that was lichen, and this is like, no, this is uh, fifty five hundred feet above sea level or so in the kind of west of the Rio Grande New Mexican high desert, and it's it's not because of like moldy, you know, lichen-y. <laughs> it's there's not a lot of that kind of stuff going on you know not at that altitude and with that climate you know but um yeah i was i told you man i was i was cuckoo for all this stuff when i was younger i kind of went on several went to several such stones but and you know what's funny i had to get a permit from the state lands uh department because it was on tribal land, it's on the Laguna Pueblo um, land. So yeah, I, and it was on, it was like state land too. You had to cross it, or if you're gonna hike it, you got to have a permit, like a right of way permit or a, a use permit. So I had to go get one, and I got it from the library in Los Lunas, uh, New Mexico, which is a little south of Albuquerque. And I knew all about it because I, you know, I, I'd read Barry Fells, America of BC, and and other things that had other books that had, had mentioned it, I seen pictures of it, so I knew what I was going out there for. And I asked the person that was giving me the permit, was at a visitor center that was in a library in Los Lunas, like what he thinks the you know origin of it is, and and you know he he said something that I didn't uh, I didn't understand what what why he would say this at the time, but now I do. He's like, yeah, some people think that you know uh, some people carved it. The, uh, more recently that were of the Mormon persuasion, he says. And that, that was the quote. And I'm like, what would that have to do with anything? But, you know, I'd never, I'd never really knowingly seen a Mormon person in my life to that point. So, I, you know, out West, knock, knock, you know. <laughs> but right. where I lived in Texas and Missouri and stuff, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so common. So I didn't really know what the whole shtick was, you know. So I'm like, what does Mormon have to do with this? But you know how stupid <laughs> it was? I'll tell you how, how stupid this is, man. It's like I went out west for the first time. I'm in the desert for the first time. I'm out driving in the desert by myself trying to find this place. And it's the first day of spring in 2000, spring equinox. And I, and I find the place, even though it's in the snow. And there's all of this actual Native American real stuff. It's all around it. And I'm like, never seen any of it in my life. 
and am I here to see this? No, this idiot white boy here is here to see this fake artifact thing. Yeah. Because you know? I really, for some reason, need to believe that somebody else was here and some other America was possible once upon a time or whatever. It's just, you know, I was young. I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's, there's the story. Yes, I've seen the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone. Interesting. Now, it's interesting because in Lavenda's book, he breathlessly describes how likely it is that this was written, you know, that this is real, that it was written in ancient Hebrew 2,500 years before Columbus arrived. And I wanted to ask both of you, actually, this is, I think this is the question I was thinking of, uh, Recluse, but... So I understand why Mormons and to a lesser extent Freemasons would make things up about the ancient, about America's past, right? What do you think Lavenda's game is in engaging with these ideas? Well, again, I mean, I, (laughs) there's a couple of things for that, but I mean, once again, you know, you have to sort of like understand like a Lavenda has been kind of in these circles with Discordians for years. I mean, going back to when he was doing the Simon Necronomicon, I mean, he, you know, is Simon mm. quote unquote gets into in dead names. I mean, they used the whole kind of Illuminatus milieu to market the Necronomicon and played into, you know, a lot of the stuff Raw was doing with Lovecraft and so forth. But then on top of that, I mean, you know, you just have to sort of look at it in the, the context of, um, Lavenda's obsession with Grant's take on a lot of um, the OTO stuff, Kenneth Grant, that is to say. Because again, I mean, in in Grant's cosmology, um, which again is very heavily rooted in this theurgic stuff and what have you, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, keep going back to this over and over again, but you also have this just sort of whole concept of the the twin earths and so forth. you know, this is the, you know, obviously the main earth that we're on here. And then there's sort of the dark earth or what have you. And that's kind of the point of the night side tree of life and all this other stuff. You go through mm. the abyss and then you end up at this twin evil earth where, you know, time travel is theoretically possible. You can access the consciousness of uh, primordial man, pre-man, and then what's coming after humanity and all this other stuff because time is lopsided and yada, yada, yada. But anyway, the point being um, the personification of this evil earth is uh, usually depicted as kind of this divine or this kind of ape-like figure on the one hand. In fact, the, the film Altered States is actually kind of an interesting representation of this where you see him kind of regress to this ape you know, type thing on the one hand and then this sort of other consciousness on the other. But uh, when it's not depicted as this sort of de-evolved ape, it is often depicted as a fool or a clown. And it goes into just this whole thing of like a divine Mm -hmm. joke and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. So I think that partly, you know, if I was to speculate from Lavenda's perspective, it's part of this sort of spiritual, you know, process, this sort of cosmic joker, if you will, if that makes any sense, sir. Yeah, it does. I've got you, Keith. Yeah, I've got one. Yeah, I I don't know if it's, I don't know if this is real, you know, or if 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 you should put any faith in what I'm gonna say. But I'm I'm gonna say anyway. First, let me ask you. I'm just gonna I'm gonna hypothesize that this was in Sinister Forces, and I'm gonna hypothesize it was towards the front end of Volume One. 
Am I right? Am I close? Uh, absolutely. I have like eight Peter Lavenda books. I've read a, a shit ton of Peter Lavenda more than I should, you know, I guess. I, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, you know, he's an enigma wrapped in a soft cover, you know, and it's not like the question isn't what is he doing? It's not what is Lavenda, not how is Lavenda. It's the question always, right, is why is Lavenda? Why? What's the end game? <laughs> you know, what is your deal, right? So I, I get it. But, um, okay, lightning round. There's a, a long interview with Bill Cooper that was on CNN that you can find. It's like an hour long. Go find it someday. He doesn't start out talking about, and that's why it's a republic, not a democracy. We need to keep it that way. No, no, no. He starts out talking about standing on the deck of a, of a submarine or a ship or whatever, and a big giant UFO comes up out of the water. And you can look at the first episode of the first season of Hellier. Mm. And you can look at a lot of things where if, if they're going to send you over the moon with some crazy mythology and whoppers and whatever, you got to start out with kind of your hypnotic induction. We got we to gotta, we gotta buy you a drink before I invite you back to my place and get you loosened up. You get, suspend your disbelief, right? So let's throw a bunch of stuff out at you that's like fantastical and, and literally fabulous, fabulous, and, and just get your juices flowing. And then we'll, then we'll start talking to you why, you know, John Wayne Gacy has this, a lazy left eye or whatever. We'll talk about that in volume two. But right now, let's talk about giants in the Indian mounds. Who's with me? Another, the end. There's my little theory. Well, another thing, too, I kind of point out also is um, Lavenda's uh, also his uh, lineage within the Wandering Bishop circles as well. Um, oh, yeah. This is uh, something that Keith and I will um, probably be getting into in the uh, Zoom party for August uh, 17th about uh, the early days of the Wandering Bishops and uh, how they might have been playing some roles in LARPs and. Uh, late 19th century Paris, uh, one of them involving a priest, I think, uh, Santerre or whatever the hell his name was, and uh, Rene Le Chateau or whatever the heck that place was. But uh, uh, sounds yeah, yeah, there might be some interesting stuff in there about um, how far back some of this myth-making has gone. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. But yeah, Fine. yeah, yeah. Don't want to get us here too far on the weeds. So mm -hmm. Jimmy, uh, let's see here. Are we ready to finally start talking about the so-called academics uh, who were debating the mound uh, legacy in the 19th century now, sir? Oh yeah, let's get into it. All right. All right. So give us a bit about John Wesley Powell, a man widely accused of suppressing evidence of the more esoteric theories concerning the Native American mountains. So first off, tell us a bit more about this uh, this guy. All right. And first, first off, if the average Mormon maybe maybe kind of remembers something about hearing about the Kinderhook plates hoax very few Mormons are going to know very much about John Wesley Bell. Like your average neighbor that, you know, is Mormon isn't going to know much about what I'm talking about. But in the field of Mormon apologetics, this is a theory that does have some traction. <clears throat> I can't speak to how prevalent it is, but some people will swear by this. <laughs> but John Wesley Bell, he's best known. He has a Wikipedia page. You can check him out. He's best known for being the second director of the U.S. Geologic Survey and the first 
Director of Ethnology at the Smithsonian Institute, early on in the Smithsonian's early days. So Powell lived all over the, you know, New England. He lived in Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois. Ding, ding, ding for all the places that have mounds, right? And before he began his adventuring, that's where he was living. He went to, you know, Illinois College in Oberlin. He fought in the U.S. Civil War for the Union as a cartographer, topographer, and military engineer. He actually lost his right arm at the Battle of Shiloh. He saw some other battles, including like Vicksburg. After the Civil War, he became a professor of geology. This was, of course, back in the day when you could pretty much dabble in any field you were interested in. There wasn't such rigid segmentation, right? So Powell, despite only having one arm, he would actually go on a series of expeditions all over the United States, largely oriented around his interests in geography or geology and archaeology. So he did expeditions in the Rocky Mountains. He did one famously through the Grand Canyon in 1869. He wrote books about Thank these. You. That's where I know the guy's name from. He's the dude that like <laughs> navigated the Colorado River for the first time. Harrowing yep. journey there. Okay. Yeah. And the book that he wrote about it was like, I think a bestseller at the time. Like this was a pretty famous guy back in the day. So in 1879, Powell became the director of the Bureau of Ethnology for the Smithsonian Institute, which had recently been created. And Powell would be the director until his death in 1902. So a good, you know, two or three, two decades or so that he was in that role. Now, here's where it gets nutty, right? Mormon apologetics, such as it is, argues that Powell specifically suppressed findings that would have vindicated the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and more broadly speaking, that Powell engaged in suppressing the diffusionist understanding of Native Americans as having interacted with, you know, a wide variety of world cultures. You know, we, we explained that earlier. So... The thing about this is it's actually less crazy than it sounds. <laughs> in 1848, the Smithsonian published a major work of archaeology. This was actually the first thing they ever published, actually. And this work suggested that the mound builders were a lost culture, and the whole thing pointed to a diffusionist theory with ancient civilizations interacting with the mound builders. Da, da. Uh huh. And then in 1894, after Powell gets in, they reverse their position entirely, despite much of the evidence we've been talking about all along. Yes, some of it being bunk, but some of it maybe not. And interestingly, the Smithsonian would continue to suppress investigations into the origin of the mound builders, period, whether diffusionist or not. All right, so let's see here. All right, Jimmy, um, let's get into Powell's feud with Ephraim George Squire. Squire? I don't know. Squire, okay. mm -hmm. And uh, Edwin Hamil Hamilton Davis. Give us the uh, lowdown on this uh, dispute. Okay, so this is pretty interesting. 
So like I said, the first thing the Smithsonian ever published, the thing that everybody was most interested in, who were the mound builders? Where did they come from? Where did they go? And this thing that they published, it was a book called Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. And the full title being Comprising the Results of Extensive Original Surveys and Explorations, 1848. It was put out by Ephraim, you know, Ephraim George Squire and Edwin Hamilton Davis. Now this book studied the mound builders of North America the text raised all kinds of questions about who the mound builders were, did not particularly answer them. The text pointed out that, the, that whoever built the mounds had an understanding of higher mathematics and advanced engineering and astronomy, which had not been observed among modern day, as of the time they were writing this, modern day Native American tribes. The book raised the question whether the Indian tribes had contact with other civilizations. And, you know, I, you, I've already done the song and dance about how this isn't necessarily like the human version of the ancient aliens theory that like Native American tribes could not have built the mounds or that they weren't related to the mound builders, but that there was some sort of societal collapse, right? Now, what's interesting is that Squire would write later on about the Smithsonian doing heavy-handed editing of his works. And I quote from an article here, Squire and Davies' 1848 report was heralded as a monumental work for over 30 years. But in the late 1800s, Squire began to experience a more organized criticism of their work with a lot of it stemming from the Bureau of Ethnology under its founder, John Wesley Powell. Powell would take the lead in working to overthrow some of the findings and claims surrounding the origin of the mound builders. This newly organized Bureau of the Smithsonian would go on to redefine many of the artifacts that had been associated with America's mound building cultures. <clears throat> the Bureau's work would serve to discredit some of Squire's previous assessments which would work to multiply the personal tragedies that would plague Squire in his later life. This rift, this rift between Squire and the Bureau of Ethnology at the Smithsonian resulted in a number of his works never being printed and in some cases never even finished. Squire was diagnosed in later life with a mental illness and was committed to a mental institution where he was imprisoned for over a decade of the last years of his life." Unquote. And of course, in the world of Mormon apologetics, this is downright proof of a conspiracy, right? To hide the truth that the Book of Mormon happened. Powell was also involved in setting up an outfit called the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, A-A-A-S, I think AAAS actually sounds much better. Uh, first off, tell us a bit about this, Sucker Jimmy. All right, so the same year that they published that landmark book on the mound builders, which is to say 1848, and not related, but you know, <laughs> same as the big wave of German immigrants to the country, the 1848ers. Around that same time, the U.S. scientific community formed the AAAS, as you say, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This was a group designed to establish scientific consensus. 
which is kind of funny, right? You would assume that there wouldn't need to be a organization to establish scientific consensus, but that is not how it works. So the AAAS was intended to quote, promote the development of science and engineering at the national level and to represent the interests of all its disciplines, unquote. So Powell was among the different contingents that made up the AAAS. His Bureau of Ethnology was heavily involved in non-scientific battles over public opinion, and Powell and his Bureau would engage in widespread debunking efforts, which we've also established may also technically have been needed given the probably high prevalence of archaeological artifacts being made. But either way, important to both the AAAS and the Smithsonian were three mound enthusiasts. We've already talked about two of them, John Wesley Powell and E.B. Squire, but the other guy is Lewis Henry Morgan. Now we'll talk about these other two guys more in a minute, but in 1879, that's when Powell is directed or appointed director of the Bureau of Ethnology. In 1882, Powell, despite really not wanting to, was instructed by Congress to establish the Division of Mound Explorations. It's funny because Powell, by all accounts, did not want to like do archaeology, and then Congress was continually sending him money in order to do archaeology, which is a very strange state of affairs because almost every scientist or researcher is, you know, begging for money typically. One of the purposes of this division of mound explorations was to explore the, you know, origins of the earthen mounds found throughout the Eastern United States, right? And like I said, Powell did not want to do this. His interest lay in dealing with the existing Indian nations. He did not seem to care about the mounds. He would, in fact, do everything in his bureaucratic power to stop the digs and focus on the modern day Indian question. Now, in 1880, the first annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology came out, and it was a giant book, 638 pages. Only eight of those pages discussed the mounds. And in fact, Powell would write an essay for that saying that there was no reason to investigate a lost race of mound builders. Now, it's interesting, okay. right? Mm, go ahead. I would just say that's, that's, you're wrong. Of course there's a reason, bro. <laughs> Sounds cool. It does sound cool, right? And it's interesting because like... No reason to do that. Like, why not? <laughs> like... Now, the modern day understanding, like assuming that we're still not in some massive psyop or something, the understanding is that the Adena and Hopewell were in fact lost civilizations. There was some sort of break between, you know, their cultures and the modern day. Yeah, know, that, that's nations. that's not a. Yeah, I, I, we had this episode we did about Cincinnati and stuff, and I was talking about this very same thing. It's in, in our, uh, in, in my part of the, you know, the country, it's, you know, the, uh, the Mogollon people, um, <clears throat> in the Southwest, you know, they, they, 
it becomes like a lost civilization with no direct oral tradition or written tradition linking the Native American people that white people first encountered with those ancient, you know, lost civilizations with a couple of exceptions. I think the Taos Pueblo uh, near Santa Fe, I think it's like that's been occupied steady for like a thousand years. So, you know, but basically, you know, a lot of the Native Americans uh, were like, yeah, we don't know who built those either. The, our ancestors did. We don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like there's these breaks in civilization that to our conceited uh, eyes or, you know, interpretations, like, how could that be? You know, but it's like, no, it happens all the time throughout time. You know, there's probably lots of lost civilizations and little pieces of them, you know, whatever, in, in places like Europe or the Middle East or whatever that just kind of got paved over to the point later on where you would not see a trace of it. But it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Things rise and fall all the time. But anyway. Exactly. So, like, it's weird, right? Because, like, basically, there is this, like, the standard like history of the Adina and Hopewell is that there was this break. So for some reason, we're talking about Powell suppressing archaeology itself, basically. And the question as to why is looming, right? And of course, Mormons would say it's because the Book of Mormon's true, but there could be a more interesting reason. Maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But in 1881, the next year after they published this report, Congress ignores the <laughs> ignores the annual report and votes them even more money to investigate the mounds. They voted them $25,000, which was a massive sum at the time, at the time relative to research, right? Wait, he was like, we don't need to be doing this. And then they just didn't even read that and said, here's another 25 grand. Yes. That's right. And like, how well, it sounds weird like is they, it? they thought it would be pretty cool too, right? <laughs> how weird is it to have a guy who runs a like bureau to like do archaeological digs and he's like, we don't need to do this. And like, dude, people are just throwing charter, the Smithsonian Institution was made to investigate the mounds. Here is twenty five thousand more dollars. Please do so. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's just like, what is going on here? Why is he doing that? And so he, Powell takes the 25000 and he uses the funds to quash interest in the mounds, which is nothing a scientist or, you know, anyone who has to seek grants, no one would ever use grant money to write a report saying we don't need more money, right? Mm-hmm. So, and plus, it's literally insubordination. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's contempt of Congress in a certain sense. State man, they got him. It's because they have the Ark of the Covenant too. Damn Smithsonian. So the Bureau writes an annual report in 1894. This was intended to be the final word in the controversy over the mound's origins, which is also kind of bizarre that a scientific body would be intentionally writing the final word on anything, right? Kind of unscientific. And this report argued that there was no lost mound builder civilization, which again is just like frankly untrue. So this is only what you could call like fraudulent reporting. And there was actually 
specific examples from some of these, you know, this Bureau of Ethnology putting out arguments that there were no findings in any of the mounds that pointed to animals not native to North America, which is false. I mean, you could maybe argue that something that looks like it's, you know, maybe a lion isn't actually a lion, but like, it's just, it's very curious what Powell was doing, even if you're not Mormon. Like, what is the game here? And that's what I got for this section, Recluse. <laughs> you know, there's there's a little subset of kind of the conspiratard world where they're like, what is the Smithsonian really hiding and everything? And I just, you know, I just always assumed, A, yeah, they're probably hiding something. B, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> but yeah. uh, hear, hearing the story like that it, it you know it does it does that is pretty suspicious i mean it's like literally an act of congress saying no we're not going to read your staff report or whatever yes here's 25 grand i'll read your thing next time if you bring us a thing about the mounds bro the mounds that's what we're doing give and us the mounds he doesn't do it like I said, there's just been, it's just so strange how there was such an interest in so many high-placed circles. I mean, with pushing the mounds, like, over the years, it's just, you know, again, it's one of those really remarkable things about all of this stuff, you know what I mean? Anything else on the curious battle between the trio of the mound enthusiasts, uh, Wesley Powell, Linda K. Morgan, and E.W. Squire? Well, we've already talked a bit about Powell and Squire. Anything about uh, Morgan and his story? Yes. So Morgan was initially a railroad, a railroad lawyer. That's where he made his money. And then he was a amateur slash professional anthropologist. So the, the three preeminent experts on the mounds in the United States, John Wesley Powell, Lewis Henry Morgan, and E.B. Squire, all three of them were from New York State. In fact, all three of them were from the burnt over district, right? <laughs> now, though, <laughs> where I'm going with this is that all three of the world's foremost experts on the mounds were from New York State and the burnt over district, and specifically with John Wesley Powell. Guess where his family was from? Palmyra, Palmyra. New York. Mm -hmm. Palmyra, New York, same as Joseph Smith. That What's was just more? a dumb guess, but my God, that cool. Yeah. Okay. Keep okay. talking, keep, keep going. <laughs> it gets better. So Powell's father was not a neutral observer of the events in the Burnt Over District with Mormonism. Powell's father was a Methodist preacher who despised Mormonism. <laughs> Interestingly, Ooh. Lewis Henry Morgan's father was also a Methodist minister from the same area. He also would, in fact, preach in Palmyra and the rest of the burnt over district. As it turns out, Squire's father was also a minister, also in the same area. That's right, you heard me correctly the three preeminent mound experts were all exposed to Mormonism early on and could by no means be trusted to be neutral on the topic of Mormonism. Now, in the world of Mormon apologetics, this is 
outright evidence of a fast cover. Just damning. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's just like case closed. Case they got closed. it in for it. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, and there's probably something. There might be something to that. Like if they found something, they're like, we can't let the Mormons see that we got this. Man, they're gonna they're gonna make way too much hay out of this. Uh, what, what does this know, say? Nephi, and it's written in Hebrew. Oh no, put that in the back room. Yeah, yeah, but get that out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I don't actually go there. I don't truly think that there was a Smithsonian cover-up to hide evidence that the Book of Mormon really happened. I think that it's just interesting that they would be, essentially, they were from the same burnt-over district with all of that unique spiritual seeking and interest in esoteric stuff and they saw themselves into the same topics right i think that's right like 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 that like uh we we forget that it's not just mormonism it was it was more than one fire burning the burned over district over so they could have been getting doing the freaky deaky with god knows what else exactly i think that they saw themselves into the same topic for similar reasons if not entirely mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. interesting but that sort of begs the question right if Powell's not trying to suppress the book of mormon what was he trying to suppress so what was he trying to suppress jimmy so this is my theory right i can't prove it necessarily but I am not suggesting that the U.S. scientific community conspired to cover up evidence that Native Americans, you know, were part of the Book of Mormon. I think that they were actually doing a real conspiracy to cover up the fact that Native Americans were not barbaric or savage or uncivilized, and that they were doing this for far more grounded, fucked up reasons that would be more likely based in greed than anything else because oh my god (laughs) this is it keep going don't let me interrupt you but i'm gonna follow you i got something okay so i mean lord knows morgan was literally a railroad lawyer right (laughs) lord knows we were talking about this group of cincinnati moving into the ohio region the ohio which was a huge theft from native americans right just like the rest of the country so my contention is that the diffusionist theory doesn't necessarily say like, oh, the Native Americans were Romans or they were Israelites or blah, blah, blah. The diffusionist theory would probably support an idea or a like a framework that these Native American tribes were in fact sovereign nations, basically, that they would trade and interact with other civilizations because they were themselves proper civilizations with their own, you know, developments. They weren't just like savages, right? And that they, I, my theory is that the Smithsonian covered up diffusionist evidence to make a stronger case that Indians were savages in order to steal from them, basically. That is amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to ping back to that later on when I'm talking about my bit, because I got something I got something that supports your, mm. your, your theory here. Okay. So we know for a fact that Powell wanted to deal with the modern day Indian question, not the ancient one. He just, he viewed that as the more important thing. He 
Powell was actively engaged in the modern day Indian question. He wrote long anthropological studies of Indians, which were used as justification to subjugate them. Powell would advocate for civilize, excuse me, Powell would advocate for civil, civilizing efforts against the Indians. As part of these efforts, he included stopping, you know, mount archaeological digs, because I think sympathy for the Indians and interest in the mounds and archaeology does tend to go hand in hand. I think you do have a humanizing effect when you study the ancient version of the modern day people, right? And side notes, there's just a long, long list of crimes that anthropology and archaeology have perpetuated against Indians, including various cover-ups, theft, and conspiracies. I am I can't speak to most of them, but I did talk to a buddy of mine, a Native American guy named Lai Hall, who told me a, off the top of his head, like a half dozen extremely egregious cases. And for me, that is the most interesting angle to studying this crank Mormon apologetics. They hit on very real conspiracies, but they are not necessarily conspiracies doing the things that the Mormons say they are. They, the Mormon apologists think that there is archaeologically sound evidence for the Book of Mormon. Indeed, there probably is a stronger case for diffusionist exposure with the mound builders than we currently understand. But on top of that, the Smithsonian engaged in this weird conspiratorial cover-up. And like I said, my contention is that the conspiracy was not to cover up evidence of the Book of Mormon, but to cover up an archaeological past, which, if fully examined, would have undermined what the United States was doing to the Indians. That's my case. Oh, Jimmy, yeah. you're, 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 you're making me all warm and fuzzy because I always love it when somebody can take some kind of conspiracy thing and say, nope, it's both more bizarre and more mundane than you thought. And here's why. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's, that's the juice. Thank you. Yeah, man. All right. Well, if uh, you don't have anything else to add about that uh, subject, uh, would you just masterfully elaborate it on there, Jimmy? Keith, sir, you're up. It is your turn. <clears throat> as uh, we go into the second section here so gonna go out on a masonic note then obviously as i've talked about a few times here we had paul stored on the last time around for this series and he gave us an overview of good old cryptic masonry but for the kids at home who may just be joining us keith why don't you give us a quick rundown of the subject before we really dig in sir well <clears throat> i want to i want to unpack that little statement here for a second i'm i uh Ah, screw it. It's the end of the world. I'll just, I'll just get my brag on. I'm, it's my fault that this dude was on your podcast. I'm the one who suggested it because I just thought this is your jam. And I didn't even realize, Recluse, how, how much uh, you guys would hit it off and, and the significance of the Beale papers with uh, some of the later Discordian Rosicrucian, <laughs> American Rosicrucian weirdness that you talked about in your excellent uh, podcast that I just got to hear it. I reached a very good out. episode. It, it, it is. And then that guy, you know, had just once again taken a big, elaborate, crazy conspiracy theory or alternative thing 
and say, yeah, it is. It's really weird. It's really interesting. Here's the real mundane, real world explanation for it. And somehow it's better than, than, than anything. I, I just, you know, and I'm going to get into it right now with this, this, uh, we're going to talk about the Kensington runestone here in a second, but I got to hear him earlier today talking about cryptic right masonry. And that's the key <clears throat> to um, what we're going to be talking about here. So I just want to go into it just a little bit. He did a better job of it, but I'll tell you what I, what I know. So, so people probably know, you know, you don't have to be a, a big Masonic expert to know that it's like, there's the regular plain vanilla masonry, and then there's the York Rite, and then there's the Scottish Rite. And the Scottish Rite's where we get the 33 from and pretend that that's like the highest quote unquote degree of masonry when it's, it's not, it doesn't work that way, but you know, YouTube is really powerful force in the universe. So who am I going to argue with really? But, um, um, then, then beyond that, you have something called side degrees that aren't necessarily on quote unquote, the pyramid. They could be orphan one-off things they could be stuff plucked out of different systems of continental or or whatever english masonry like right of strict observance or memphis mizram or or whatever they could be quasi masonic degrees i'll tell you a little bit something about masons if if i could just i'm going to do something here just just real quick and i'll i'll try to keep it short but you know paul stewart had said something earlier when I was listening about how, you know, he's, he's never been a Mason, but he has a lot of appreciation and respect for him. And maybe, maybe he thought some of his uh, writings might be received differently if he had joined the fraternity or whatever, you know, I, I was, you know, in, in the Masons, it was a long time ago. I was in it for about three or four years. I went as far as third degree which is as far as you can honestly really go in, in most, most Mason's opinion. It's not that you go up, you go out from third degree to these other appendant bodies, not ascendant, appendant. And so here's, you know, Masonic lodges are governed by a grand lodge in the United States. Each state has a grand lodge in England. It's where Masonry comes from. It's, one grand lodge over the whole British empire or whatever here, it would be Mississippi's got one, Arkansas has got one, Arizona's got one and their rules, their governing constitutions and, and things. It, it really is like a model of a Republican democratic form of government. And you get Masons that become like these career Masons where they're just, it's almost, it's, it's, it's past the point of hobby. It's something that they continuously do. Um, and they'll be drafting legislation and presenting the legislation at the Grand Lodge of Minnesota this year or whatever. You know, I remember when I was in it, there was, there was, a, there was a law being passed or being discussed about whether Masons should be able to carry a piece, man, when they're in the lodge. We can be armed or not. This is the Wild West. And, you know, the big city guys outvoted the country guys and then suddenly you couldn't carry a gun in the lot <laughs> and so one of you know this old cowboy guy this is when i first joined like 10 years ago and he's like i'm gonna carry a gun if i want to you know, i don't see anybody from stupid old phoenix you know in this in this building i want to um, you know they had cold dead hands you know 
so there's a lot of it that just involves like creating legislations and they have a they have a masonic constitution that governs each grand lodge and so they literally have like legislative bodies that make and repeal laws so i've seen in the previous podcast in the rolling comedy series about masons playing how and they're doing this sacred reenactment or sacred pantomime or whatever of a Republican American type form of government, but it doesn't mean Jack squat outside of a Masonic context. It has no bearing on the real world whatsoever, except insofar as it's a way to practice um, that form of government that you might then do in the real world if you ran for office or whatever. It's very complimentary. It's like sacred America. It's, it's a sacred version of the American system of government. That is what 99% of what goes on in little Masonic lodges all over the country all the time. Back to the story. Back to the story. So some people get really, really wrapped up in masonry. And they'll write lectures. They'll write letters. They'll create or disseminate degrees. Become one of the people that confers the degrees. Some of them become literal Masonic lawyers and legislatures. Like I said, there's all kinds of different things you can do. So you could also be an itinerant sort of preacher or degree confer guy, like Paul Stewart was alluding to, where you've got a handful of these degrees that you know how to confer and you've got the legitimate mojo to hand them out or whatever. And they're going out West and they're giving, offering people these side degrees. And so some of these Masons that are really like Masons, Masons, like i want more titles i want to i want to check out your degree that you're offering you know they could just go do that as a side thing so there was one called royal master and one called select master and there's another thing that i'm not that familiar with it but i'm vaguely familiar it's called the royal arch and this is in the york rite of freemasonry okay oh yeah and the it's, royal arch. it's yeah. right and it's it's some kind of astral astronomy uh, you know uh allegory that again i didn't i never joined york right so i don't really know that much about it and i didn't want to know because it's like if i ever did do it i don't want to spoil it for myself or whatever i'm so refraining anyway, from uh, asking about job alone yeah because you're not going to get very far with me because i don't remember and i and i think that's i think that job thing has something to do with york right and again i never went there however albert pike's book of the words if you can find it in a PDF form online, we'll probably give you a full Kabbalistic explanation, which you can do whatever you want to do with, you know, if you're not that there's anything wrong with that. But um, so Royal Master and Select Master, according to what I've read, were supposed to be like capstones on either end of the, the degree course of the Royal Arch. Sorry, I'm getting all technical about this. Um, they wanted it incorporated eventually. Eventually, these people are, 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 are giving these degrees out, right? And they kind of take on the life of their own. And some of the people that are really into these two degrees in particular want it to be incorporated into Scottish Rite. Scottish Rite says, well, it's redundant. We've already got the Royal Arch, and this is kind of re repetitive of what's already in there. So we're not going to put it in there. And the what would later become the Cryptic Masons, the the promulgators of royal and select master degrees are like, no, 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 no. 
it, it sounds redundant because it, it belongs with the other stuff. It's actually completes the allegory of the thing. It doesn't, it's not redundant. It's, it's, it's complimentary, you know, but the Scottish Rite said no. And then the Morgan affair happens and it kind of suppresses Mason for a long time. But then like around, you know, the period right after the civil war, Masonry explodes, fraternal organizations in, in general, almost all of which are derived somehow from Freemasonry. Uh, the latter half of the 19th century is the, is the golden age of American white boy mojo dojos springing up all over the land. White boy magic. <laughs> yeah, white boy. I, I was thinking about it last night. It's like literally it's their mojo dojo. It's like, yep, that's what it is. It's the dojo where I get my mojo you know um yeah they're springing up all over the land whether it's odd fellows or the pythian knights or the reformed order of red men or anyway so during this golden age of freemasonry these royal and select master guys you know they basically decide we're, we're gonna we're just gonna strike out on our own and now i'm finally back off my tangent back to the damn point you for a while you had York right and Scottish right and cryptic right masonry, and that's you know I think it would lasted like twenty or thirty years, um, where you know you had this whole other kind of Masonic system, and it's not really the way it is today, but that's how it was for a little while, and eventually it was incorporated into York right. Uh, some. York Rite Grand Councils or Grand Lodges or whatever um, include the cryptic degrees, and some of them don't. Some of them say you have to do it before you can do the Templar degrees, and some of them don't. Um, the higher degrees of York Rite Masonry, you have to profess Christianity, and that's where your Templarism comes in, but I guess that's off the subject. Point is, cryptic Masonry survives today as a piece of the York Rite system okay um i guess i guess that's it yeah it, it, it's just amazing because it was kind of like a like a side degree that became like the star of its own show and it was probably like a homebrew american degree uh system so it was it's just kind of neat it's like this american spinoff thing that later becomes its own grand lodge for a little while yeah, amongst Masons, I guess it's kind of like nerdy, cool, or whatever. Yeah, it was a I long mean, time ago. That that that's the cryptic Masons. What were you gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say, like, I recently found it coming up in some other thing I was researching, and I was just like deeply sighing at having to like figure out what cryptic Freemasonry was. So I'm very happy to hear that explanation. Yeah. So I, that's probably more than you asked for because it, I just use it as an opportunity to talk about what masonry you know kind of like what really looks like if it wasn't for like full-on mason nerd guys none of this would have happened it's like that's that certain kind of guy that's just like this is just what i'm gonna do i'm i'm, I'm gonna only see my wife like one or two nights a week i'm gonna be out doing this it's called <laughs> old-timey podcasting old-timey yeah way old anyway that's that's a more than basic explanation Oh, certainly a, a nice uh, overview there, bro. All right, so the uh, the Kensington runestones. First off, tell us the official narrative on the sucker, Keith. Well, 
the Kensington runestone. How does it relate to cryptic masonry? I guess we'll, we'll find out. Stay tuned. I want to say that um, Paul Stewart has been gracious enough to put his uh, piece called Solving the Kensington Runestone, Paul G. Stewart, and it is on academia.org or academia.whatever. Uh, so people, this is my main source, obviously. Uh, so people can find that for themselves if they want. It's online for free. Um, you might even want to put a link in the doobly-doo there, recluse, whatever. Uh, so the, the official narrative is, in this case, because a lot of the stuff we're dealing with right now, we're talking about texts. So the official narrative of the Kensington runestone is provided by none, none other than the runestone itself. So it's probably the most famous specimen of, of those kind of texts found all over the Americas, but mostly North. And so I'll read to you what it says, because it's not very long. Eight Goths and 22 Norwegians on an expedition from Vinland to the West. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> we had a camp with two shelters, one day's journey north from this stone. We were also fishing one day. After we came home, Found 10 men red of blood and dead. A-V-M or A-U-M. Save us from evil. And then on the side, it says, we have 10 men at sea to watch after our ships. 14 days journey from this island. Year 1362. So that's what the runestone itself says. So it's, a, it, you know, so it's a story of eight Goths and 22 Norwegians. They somehow made it through the Great Lakes, and here they are, like in Minnesota, like leaving guys behind to, to watch the boat. And so what, what becomes the official narrative out of this is just, it's obvious from looking at the stone and reading the runes. Holy crap, this is like some Viking dudes in 1362 or whatever. I guess some Nor Nor Norwegians and Goths, excuse me. Uh, you know, here they are in North America in 1362. It's like the dang old thing. Yeah. And so, you know, it becomes like the ultimate centerpiece, the turkey on the table of like the whole diffusionist thing. And, you know, it, and it's gripping on to some, some legit stuff. Like, you know, there's the Vinland saga and there's, you know, the most solid evidence for, for some of that uh, cross oceanic, you know, diffusion theories is, is it's Leif Erikson, man. You know, it's, it's going up to Newfoundland and Greenland and, and sailing down the coast of North America. They found the sites and stuff. So it's not like it's unheard of. Um, but yeah, it's a it's supposedly a record of Norwegian exploration in North America made out of like literal runes. And it's captured the imagination of many, many people ever since. So there's your official narrative. And it's been said that it's a hoax, it's been said that it's a forgery. Yeah, there's all it's it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, right? <laughs> like they all seem to be. All right. That is still Paul. Stewart came along who yeah, suggests it. that it may not be a hoax uh, after all you know it, what if it's a puzzle you know what if it's some kind of riddle what if it's some kind of like American homegrown Da Vinci code business 
you know? And when I reached out to him, okay, I, I wrote a, I wrote a little cool piece in a, in a now shuttered folklore journal. It was like the first piece of writing I ever got published, right? One of the only. And so I was doing some research about it because I was telling the story about going and seeing the, the Los Luna stone and going and seeing the Heaven of Rune stone and going and seeing the supposed Alm uh, glyph in the Palatki ruins near Sedona, blah, blah, blah. And I used to be all nerdy for all this stuff. So anyway, I'm writing this story about how I kind of got off my bullshit and what I think it all means. And, and uh, so I wind up finding this guy's book and it's this author named, you know, the enigmatist, which is <laughs> Paul Stewart's name, you know, nom de plume or whatever. And he had a much longer manuscript talking about the, the Kensington runestone and how it was, you know, his solution to it. The thing that he has up on academia now is much more succinct, much shorter, and it's just the facts and and you know and a little speculation. Um, but he says it's a puzzle, it's a cipher. Um, yeah. It and uh, and and how it relates to the cryptic masons. If I can just if I just keep going here, uh, is his theory, and he's it's pretty solid, I think. His theory is that one of the main dudes with the main, the main mojo guys, a guy named uh, George Washington Cooley, was the person that he thinks would have done, done this work and created this runestone. And he says it's if you decode all the numbers in it, the big one being 1362, um, it, he says it's a declaration of independence in cipher. And it's like my word here, the omphalos, the navel of the world. The place where it was found, he says. If you took a, if you were like God or, oh no, if you were the great architect of the universe, excuse me. And you had a giant compass the size of North America, big enough to stick down into this stone in Minnesota from outer space and trace a big circle exactly 1,362 miles out from that point where the runestone was found. It touches the tip of Florida, touches the tip where the Rio Grande uh, empties into the Gulf of Mexico, Brownsville, Texas. It touches the tippy top Northwest Seattle, Puget Sound, Bellevue, Washington, right by British Columbia, touches the tip of Maine, it's a boundary stone, or it's a, 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 it's, it's a, it's a center point for this newly created cryptic masonry Grand Lodge. It's their, uh, it's, it, he says that this is their stone that they put in the ground that is like a, a survey marker on a grand scale from which you can trace and establish their newly created jurisdiction of their Masonic body that they had just created. Damn. Holy shit. Right. Uh, to me, it's just so much more cool than Vikings. I'm sorry. When I found this out, I was like, dude, now this, now this is like some national treasure shit right here, but like IRL, you know, and it's not a treasure at all. The, the treasure See, this is why I gave you a whole big long rant about like 
um, Masons being like nerdy bureaucrat, sacred bureaucracy guys. It's like, what's the big treasure that it's referring to? Oh, it's our new Masonic jurisdiction where we can charter new lodges and confer degrees. That's our sacred Masonic treasure. <laughs> there's no gold, you know, there's no Holy Grail. It's just paperwork. We're just getting... <laughs> We're going to put out the proceedings of the Grand Lodge of Cryptic Masons of Minnesota next year. And you're invited to our grand communication and we'll bang the gavel. Because <laughs> that's masonry. Because it really is. It really do be like that, you know. <laughs> so that's the, uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of skipping around and, and telling tell what, what, what Mr. Stewart here says it's all about. Mr. Stewart, if you're listening, I hope I'm doing you justice here, uh, you know. But the, but the, there's like a numeric cipher in it. Uh, he, he, he lays it all out in kind of a spreadsheet and really shows his work mathematically of how he arrived at this conclusion. And I think it holds up better than any, any explanation for the Kensington runestone anybody's ever had or, or ever will have. Yeah. Yeah. No, Paul's uh, thoughts on a lot of this stuff are certainly amazing. <clears throat> All right, yeah. so uh, let's get into how crucial the number 33 is to this cipher. Um, you know, this was something Paul and I also talked about <clears throat> a bit about with the Beal papers as well. But uh, so what is it about 33 and the Kensington uh, runestone, Keith? Well, there's little number 33s that you that are sticking right out, right out at you. And then there's stuff you have to arrive at by addition or subtraction all over throughout the the decoded document but mainly he says he thinks that 33 might have been a a number of personal significance to the george washington cooley guy and i it, rather than getting into it too deeply i would just say you should look at the academia um thing because he's got several things that are in there that like his wife's, the letters in his wife's name and his name. And, you know, there's all kinds of different instances of 33 that are arrived at in all kinds of different contexts throughout that runestone and the cipher that's in there. People attach that 33 number to Scottish Rite, you know, I, I and I get it. I understand why and people make a big deal. 33rd degree. Harry Truman was 33rd and his middle name was Solomon, blah, blah, blah. But like, where does cryptic right exist and continue today? It's in York right masonry, you know, the one with the Christian Templarism. You know, the Royal Arch is shared. You can do the Royal Arch degrees in Scottish right and York right. But the cryptics found a home basically in the York right. That's where they got assumed back into, you know, American masonry. So. You know, they, in, in the York Rite, people don't really care about 33 as much. So it's not like a Scottish Rite thing to me, but I, I may be wrong about it. And, 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 and Stuart uh, does admit that, you know, the number being of personal significance to George Washington Cooley is a little bit. It, it's one of the areas that he feels like he's on the most speculative grounds with. I'm sure there's reasons for it. And also sometimes when people are making stuff like this, it's hard to get inside their head, but you got to figure you got to leave room for people just um, being playful and having fun. 
especially if they're like Einstein, Stephen Hawking nerd level, you know, like what does fun <laughs> look like to that guy? You know what I mean? I'm going to put 33s into everything in my cipher. Ha uh-huh. ha. You know, I have no idea what the real significance of 33 being in there is, but it's all over the, the, the cipher yields that number over and over again from different angles. Yeah, it is fascinating. Certainly, Paul and I also had a trip like trying to figure out the whole thing with 23 showing up in the um, the Beale papers as well. But yeah, I mean, just the, the stuff with the numbers is always fascinating. You know, I was getting coffee. I was going in the gas station. I was getting coffee. And y'all were t- holding forth on the 23 part. And then I went in to get the coffee. And then I came out and so I missed some of it. So it was just, yeah, I missed some of the 23 part, but you guys were basically like, yeah, what's up with the 23? You know, I don't know. Like the whole, the whole purpose of the runestone and and everything can be solved and understood the way that Stuart lays it out without the 33 having anything to do with it. Would you say the same is true for those bill papers? Uh, I, I really don't think so. I mean, I really think you need the 23 and the 33. Yeah. The numbers are, I think, really key to the cipher. The 23, especially, I think, is kind of like the window into a lot of it. And that's, you know, why, again, it's kind of such an enigmatic one. <laughs> our, sure. um, all right. So are there any other uh, significant pieces of Dramantria and the runestones besides the 33, Keith? Well, you know, um, Gematria, I mean, yes, there, there's there's a little bit more of that in there. But one thing I think was really interesting about the interpretation of it is that kind of the conventional narrative around the runestone. When I read the text a minute ago, um, you know, it said AVM, save us from evil. The AVM is like all capitalized, you know. And so people have thought that it's like some kind of reference to Ave Maria, you know, um, or it's some kind of Christian prayer. And interestingly enough, some actual Masons wrote, you know, into one of these like Masonic journals. I told you they just put out reams and reams of paper in their heyday, the journals and the proceedings and the minutes and the blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, somebody's writing and giving these people hints, you know, suggesting maybe the guys that did this in 1300s were Masons. Um, Cause in the, back in the day, in the Roman times, you know, Augustus would never have the a U. You can't really yield that very well off of cutting in stone. You need straight marks for stone. So a J will get represented as an I. And a, a U will get represented as a V. So it's A-U-M, not A-V-M. Right? And that is... Uh, a word of, you know, latter day, I would say Masonic significance, not, not in the early days, but later on as Freemasonry got more and more influenced by new age kind of stuff, it really started creeping in and was just flooding in by the latter half or the latter quarter of the, the 19th century it was just getting theosophized and Albert Pikeified, you know, so anyway, the, the word Aum, you know, it's obviously old Sanskrit, you know, uh, some of the Masons think that that might be the origin of the word Amen, 
people that have uh, done a lot of speculations and etymology, you know, kind of attribute a lot of significance to that. So the fact that the word AUM is in this thing, you know, really is like a blinking red light, like, you know, this is not some ancient Viking stuff. This is, this is more modern Masonic influenced word being in there. It's kind of a giveaway. And because people didn't understand it at first, whoever this word, somebody named like Ignotum, Ignotus or something writing under a pen name writes into this, you know, Masonic journal saying, you silly Masons, that's not AVM, it's AUM. What if these Norsemen were Masons, you know? Can I I ask a broader question? Uh, Yeah. Like, why are there so many Freemasons who are doing these archaeological hoaxes? It just seems like there's, like, more than you would expect. And I know that, like, like, we've been talking about it, but, like, what would the short answer be? Um, The really short answer would be because they can. (laughs) Time on their hands. Uh, you know, when in, in this, in this uh, solving the Kensington runestone thing, for example, you know, um, <clears throat> Paul Stewart is talking about whoever the lucky guy is that we're going to finger for having been the creator of the Kensington runestone. He needs to have the following things going for him. You know, he needs to know where to get the stone. He needs to have a really good high level understanding of math to have a lot of time on his hands and a place where he can work privately in secret and he needs to have time and you know the circumstances under which he can bury this thing under a tree and not have anybody know about it it's like the guy that ultimately they, that stewart says did it paul or um george washington cooley you know he checked all those boxes but more important than all the knowledge and stuff you just literally have to have the time you have to be able to say i can physically do this uh i you know i'm going to talk in a minute about some of the other um masonic just just a sample of some other masonic artifacts or artifacts with a masonic connection like this one um and maybe some answers will come out i don't think it's the same for i don't think it's the same answer for everyone but it is interesting as hell that Masons pop up in it. Um, I, I, you know, to, to try to actually answer your question instead of just dancing around it. Um, man, it's a really subtle and hard to talk about sort of thing, but uh, the Masonic system is kind of a, mm, uh, it invites speculation. It invites uh you know, your imagination to go places in some ways. Um, and it's just going to be inevitable that somebody takes that and says, you know, I'm going to do something, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do something cool. I'm going to pull a prank. I'm going to fool the world. And also it's America and America is like built by like hucksters and pranksters and con men. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so it like it just like as american as yeah. george washington freemasonry and apple pie you know it's just like 
some PT Barnum shit, you know, um, there's probably more than one answer, but um, there's a certain invitation to poetic license and speculate. That's why they literally call it speculative masonry is because you're, you're invited to ponder these symbols and think about what they might mean and all this kind of stuff. And there's, there's no 100% right answer for any of it. That's because if there was, then it wouldn't be speculative anymore. It would be in the, in the realm of the decided settled hash. So America and its Indian mounds, which become a blank canvas, like I said in the beginning for, you know, uh, speculations about what came before a lot of these Masonic connected artifacts wind up being pulled out of Indian mounds uh, is also of some significance because if you pull it out of an Indian mound and you get everybody to believe that whatever thing you found is legit. Now you've changed what people think about those ancient people that built those mounds. So you know, that's a non-Masonic motive that would have been shared by, you know, other people. I mean, I think Joseph Smith was kind of on that tip before he ever became a Mason, right? On, on which tip? Sorry, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, just uh, treasure hunting as they. As yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's the Nephites left these plates here because that's what they were. <laughs> okay. All right. Was there was there any other symbolism or anything of notes on the runestones? Well, any other symbol? You know, I, I kind of talked about a lot of it. Um, one of the one of the big ones. There was some kind of like hooked R, or there was like a one of these runes that had like a dot in it that became fodder for there, there's the guy if you ever want to have a good time watching some like snarkiness on the internet you can go look at a guy named jason colavito's blog and he's kind of like an art skeptic that he'll just like live blog and like pick apart shows that come on the ancient aliens channel whatever the what the dude with the ufos and the hair you know what i'm talking about it used to be the History Channel, but now it's all like, were the Egyptians really from the planet Zoltrot? You know, here's a commercial for Exxon or whatever. Um, I hate that. It, I, TV sucks. Um, the Ancient Aliens Channel, the History Channel, whatever. There was a guy, uh, Scott Walter, that had a show called America Unearthed. That's what it was. And uh, that dude has made a whole little cottage industry out of the having the right interpretation, quote unquote, of the Kensington runestone. And, you know, he just says, these were Templars. They were Masons. Uh, the Kensington runestone proves it. Um, you know, I'm just giving a very quick sort of thing. And it's like this kind of waspy Anglo-ish um, interpretation of the runestone that proves that uh, Templar refugees were here before Columbus. Therefore. Move over Catholics, uh, uh, Northern Europeans have an earlier claim to North America. But that's not the point. The point is, is one of these runes was like, it didn't exist back then. It was like the hooked R with a dot in it. You'd have to, you'd have to go watch the show. And now he, he like sells them as a pendant, whatever. He's like, some people are using this as their personal symbol. I'm like, yeah, okay. $29.99. Come to my website. <laughs> I was like, okay, man. But anyway, if you ever go to Jason Colavito's blog and 
Google Scott Walter, Jason Colavito. You can watch uh, watch that guy pick them apart. There's all kinds of symbols. Of course, the 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 runes themselves. The whole thing is like a the whole rune stone itself is 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 like this big hyper sigil thing that you can extract the numbers out of and have it blow up into a, like a whole boundary map. Like I said, I mean, in that sense, it's such a one of a kind work of art slash surveying slash engineering slash poetry slash cryptography. The, the, the equal of which I have no idea what it would be. It's like, just like a one of a kind cool cool it's just a really neat kind of thing whatever you think about the cryptic masons and all that kind of stuff it's like somebody just took they spent a lot of time on this and it's just like this mathematical hack that's just cool i don't know if you're into that kind of thing you know well, that's probably true of most of the people listening to this that's what we're talking about it so yeah well i hope mm. so because i'm sure blah 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 about it you know all right, so uh, uh, yeah, Go anything ahead. else on the symbolism? No, 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 that's 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 good, man. All right, so tell us about the guy Paul uh, Stewart Fingers for the rune stones and his location that he's operating from as well, sir. Yeah, well, the guy, I'll pull it up. Here's what he says, you know, <clears throat> who is the guy that did this? He's gonna have to be an American Freemason from Minnesota, highly comfortable with mathematics, conversant with cartography or surveying, knows how to do ciphers and codes, has access to Swedish and Norwegian language, either directly or through you know, intermediaries, has access to a Scandinavian script from a very specific part of Sweden, access to the stone. And it goes on and on. You know, 33 may have been his pet number in life. But like I said, he had the ability and time to produce it in secret, ability and time to scout out and locate the final resting place, had the ability and time to transport the completed stone in secret. So, and unless it was a, unless it was a one and done, he was probably, you know, had, he's got other weird things that he came up with. And it had to be motivated by something big to make something like the as big and complex as the Kensington Roomstone. So after laying out all these criteria, he says this guy, George Washington Cooley, has got to be the guy. And it goes through all these 14 points and basically says, yeah, did he have access to these rooms? Yes, he did, because he knew people from Sweden and he had access to the stone. The guy, this, this really made me think about Penny Royal. If whatever season they're on is season two, right? The very first episode, they're talking about, they're doing the hypnotic induction. They're talking about uh, the roadways of the United States and how involved the Masons were in laying out the roads and stuff, or you know, being involved with engineering and things like that. So anyway, this guy was one of these Masons who was also like a surveyor. He was a surveyor for the North Pacific Railway. Um, yeah, and and Which, you know, road material. Wait, I mean, he he was a geologist. Can, right. can I interject too that I know for a fact, just from like labor history, that they got a lot of railroad workers into Freemasonry as a 
concerted efforts to keep them from being as pro-union as they could have been? Um, that that tracks. I I don't really know, but uh, yeah, that's your union because it is kind of a mutual aid society, right? So this is funny. You double dipping on your workers, like yeah, take care of each other. <laughs> Anyway, so so this guy George Washington Cooley, you know, he he checked all the boxes, um, and and he was one of these Mason guys that was like kind of a transportation engineer and a cartographer and a surveyor. So you know, to make a big claim like this, you got to have big stuff to back it up. And somebody clearly a human made this. So who would that guy be? And so, you know, um, Mr. Stewart here is really doing yeoman's work saying nope i got a guy how about this guy and goes through all the reasons why he thinks it just had to be this dude oh and by the way he's one of the big poobahs of the newly created cryptic right of masonry so that last criteria he needed a big reason to want to go through this and and make this design and chisel out and find a spot for it and hide this rune stone you know, what would possess you to do that? And it's like, no, the Declaration of Independence for the this newly created cryptic right, which he was a big part of, there's your big reason. You know, what's also interesting Checks out to me is like the like, connection yeah, with Minnesota, which I thought was kind of interesting too, because that's also sort of around this whole Great Lakes area too, which we were, you know, kind of talking about earlier with the Northwestern Territories. Mm -hmm well and so forth so it's kind of that strange connection it's not far from southern minnesota and another you know huge area with all these mount or southern wisconsin and again like this whole area with all these mounds and so forth and um again there's the close relationship between the twin cities area where it was based in wisconsin and i mean a lot of the, the mound areas there so again i gotta kind of point that out that's kind of another odd like kind of component in this and there was certainly a lot of interest in the wisconsin sites uh, and uh, certainly a lot of the focus with theology too besides that in that kind of area in minnesota so it's it's again just interesting how certain regions of the country seem to turn up in a lot of this stuff over and over again as well mm -hmm. um anything else on this gentleman though no, I, I just one more time. I'll plug uh, Paul G. Stewart's thing on academia and tell folks that if you don't want to, if you want to read the real thing instead of hearing me yap about it, uh, please feel free to head over to academia and check it out for yourself. It's, tw it's twenty-six page documents. So it's not like a whole book, and a good there, there's a good amount of like illustrations and examples of maps, including the round maps that Mr. Cooley had made, which you need. You know these round maps. It's, it was, it was uh, integral to the kind of the methodology of making that runestone do what it was supposed to do. But anyway, he shows his work. Um, he goes through much more detail and much more succinct than my rambly self. So no, nothing more about him. So bringing home, do you have anything to add on the cryptic masonry aspect of this and how it relates also to the Beale papers? Um, nothing that I didn't already kind of jump around and talk about before. Okay. Um, I, I don't think I'm really going to add anything new if I keep 
for it than to wrap up i mean jimmy's talked a bit about the mounds of the mormon stuff okay so besides the kenningston uh thing and the runestones there what are some of the other potential instances you see in 19th century north america involving masons and other esoteric orders involved in these kind of things keith okay lightning round first of all i'll dip into the 20th century and just tell you right down the road in tucson there's these things called the tucson artifacts which are supposed they're these uh, lead crosses and swords made out of cast lead um, that are inscribed with all kinds of like Latin and Hebrew letters and and you know inscriptions talking about some refugees from the end of the Roman Empire or early medieval Europe had come to the Tucson area and they cast these lead crosses and told their whole story. And um, these were found in the twenties in the Tucson area, picture rocks where I recorded my last album. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the story that gets put on most of the websites and whatever is about it being, you know, these ancient Roman sort of refugees fleeing the barbarians or whatever, then they just randomly wind up in the Southwest. But there's also a lead cast square and compass in there, which get passed over like, well, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. There's a, cause you know, the, the, I've seen some ancient like Chinese stuff with a square and compass used in iconography and art, but it wasn't like some common Roman thing. It's like, no, that's, that's dating this to modern, you know, modern America, Freemason, uh, Mason, crazy American people doing this, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll move on. There was a, Ooh, Jimmy, the thing I was talking about before I said, I'd come back to in Ohio, they found these things. They call them the Holy stones. These are the Newark, Newark, Ohio, Holy stones. Okay. And there's mm -hmm. just a real quick story about it. They found one. And it was like really, really badly done Hebrew um, inscription on a, on a, on a stone. Right. Um, and so, you know, people said, so it's like, this is really clearly modern stuff. And so a few months later, they find another one that kind of got a did a little better, like, like looked a little more authentic because <laughs> the first time was, <laughs> was so obviously identified as like a forgery or whatever. But um, the first one that he pulls out, you know, somebody's like, it's got the Ten Commandments carved on it. It's got some Moses looking lawgiver looking dude on it. It's a really cool looking piece of art. And it's found in like a stone box. And, um, you know, they take it around to see who who can identify what this is. And they take it to these masons and they're like, Oh yeah, it's a Masonic keystone, you know. Like yeah, okay. And uh, so when they find it's the next closed. one, well, yeah. But see, what? It, let me get to the actual point. Like the guy was making it up as he goes along. He models it off of a Masonic keystone. The Hebrew is pretty modern, and it's pretty obviously modern. Uh, what I learned this year, Cincinnati is the birthplace of Reformed Judaism in the United States. They might have been able to find a Hebrew scholar not too far away to tell him all this. But then subsequently, he finds another one and then another one in different other Indian mounds. And by the way, these are all pulled out of Indian mounds. 
right? <laughs> um, that cover the tracks of the, the fakery a little better. Like, all right, this looks more like old, older Hebrew. All right, this one doesn't look like a Masonic keystone, you know? Does it mean that the guy was a Mason? His name was David Weirich. Uh, maybe, maybe he was. If he was, it's just like when somebody tells you, my grandfather was a Mason. It's like, yeah, you and everybody else, bro. You know, something <laughs> like 25, 30% of all adult American males around 1900 were like in the Masons. <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, it's not really that special the further back you go. Um, so, you know, books regalia the little jewels and things that they wear you know that it's all over the place permeating the culture so it doesn't even have to be that the guy was hebrew him or a mason himself you just you can't walk around without tripping on something masonic in the in the late 19th century but going to your theory i'm just going to read you this this is off ohioarchaeology.org and this is a, uh, an article called the newark Holy Stones, the social context of an enduring scientific forgery. This is the Ohio Archaeological Council's webpage. So it's kind of a, you know, legit or something. So, okay. Newark Holy Stones, infamous frauds in Ohio archaeology. Long dismissed by professional archaeologists simply as a crude effort to support the ethnocentric notion that the so-called lost tribes of Israel built the mounds and earthworks of Eastern North America. Well, when examined in their social context, they actually shed light on an historically significant debate in 19th century anthropology. The champions of something called polygenesis, and I'll stop quoting so I can tell you in my mm. words, polygenesis basically means African Blacks, uh, American Indians, they're all their own separate actual species. They're not, they're not even the same as human white oh, people geez. or whatever. They're, right. Therefore, if we want to do whatever, treat them like animals, we can do that because we're literally not even of the same species. Then you had your monogenesis theory people that argued that all humans were descended from Adam and Eve and human slavery was, was bad. So this archaeology website says that when you look at it in this context, this debate was raging. And of course, this is before Darwin. This is before, you know, these are settled questions at this point. Yeah, we're all actually part of the same species, guys. But um, these stones are found during this debate between the polygenesists and the monogenesis people. And they, the holy stones their theory here is that these holy stones were planted in these mounds and then found to justify arguments against slavery. Uh. Ah, these, these Indians were actually, uh, maybe the Hebrew people were here with them. Maybe we're all of one species after all people of the book. Don't shoot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so isn't isn't that isn't that interesting? So how does that tie in? I bet you there's some kind of hook that you can tie that back to John Wesley Powell. Yeah. Right? Oh, these savages. They, they, there's nothing in there. There's just just a bunch of rocks being banged together, you know. Let's let's move on. You know. I, I think when when you were talking about that it really made me think of it. Uh but I, in the interest of brevity here, I'm going to just kind of keep going. So there's another one with a Masonic and there was the Bat Creek Stone. 
I think that was in Tennessee that it was found in 1889. Um, it's got a Hebrew inscription um, that kind of reads holiness to the Lord, which there's a Masonic connection there because Masonic people, they mine and speculate on Old Testament mythology quite a bit. That's, that's a big part of the whole Masonic shtick is speculating on Old Testament scripture, let's just say. So that had a, uh, that had a Masonic connection in that sense. Um, um, you can look at these stones as evidence for all kinds of stuff like the Lost Tribe stuff or Mormonism. Or, you know, just nerds like me, I was into this stuff from like a secular fringe archaeology poetic, literally inspired by Hakim Bey type uh, vibe. That's where I was coming at it from. You know, my point with all this stuff, and we'll talk about it later in, 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 the, in, in a later episode of the series, is like, you know, the Kensington runestone, they put it in the ground. It has a certain agenda behind it. But a hundred years later, that's gone, and now people are still speculating on it. And may, maybe that the Newark Holy Stones was about uh, answering through the artifact some kind of scientific debate going on. But a hundred years later, it's like Christian identity people and lost tribes theorists are leaning on stuff like that as evidence for their position. As long as those stones are around and remembered. They're going to be the subject. They're the new blank slates, new interpretations, and, and the, the, the evidence or the, uh, the battlefield for the, the struggle for what we think America's past really was. And it turns out to be a contentious little battlefield when you, when you pull the hood up and look under it. The end. That was very well said, Keith. And uh, certainly, you know, we're going to continue to get into this when we get more into the 20th century. Um, so you guys will definitely have that one to look forward to and maybe another installment or two. I might bring Paul back to further elaborate a bit on the Kinson runestones and uh, some other previews and other things he's looked at with the cryptic masons. And um, also, too, like I said, we might... Uh, Consider doing a full-blown on Moorish science and some of this other stuff that uh, led to the, you know, the Nation of Islam, because that's kind of another interesting uh, component of all of this as well. But regardless, we've got some really interesting stuff to address in the 20th century. Obviously, we've already hinted at we're going to look at the Mormon farms thing other kind of Mormon oddities uh, and some of their forgeries that have uh, continued uh, well into modern times and probably a little bit of stuff with uh, Tracy Twyman and some other things of that nature too. I mean, it's, it's going to be fun times guys. Uh, anyway, I hope everybody listening is enjoying the shows as much as we've had making them. Um, you know, they've been very much a labor of love and uh, certainly Keith and Jimmy will be back and I'm uh, very excited about that. I uh, thank them again so much for uh, participating in this and uh, for Keith uh, coming up really with the whole concept for this. It's uh, it's a great idea and uh, in line with some of the other stuff I've been looking at. Um, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, what can I say, more... man? I just didn't want to talk about Nazis for once, you know? 
Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> Someone just kind of do Mormons and Masons uh, and some of the other stuff. But um, you know, again, I know with all the stuff going on in the world right now, people might say think some of this is redundant now. But I mean, a lot of the you know the kind of chaos that we're experiencing now, I think, was already etched into the nation. When you look at some of these schizophrenic takes and our histories and these struggles and in many cases, I mean, you know, it's it's still playing out to this day. That's um another one of the more remarkable aspects of all of this so uh definitely keep an uh an ear period for the appeal for these shows and the society of cincinnati ones because you're going to learn a lot about um kind of the uh instabilities built into the republic so to speak and some of the maybe more than a, uh, negative aspects that are only now really coming into play that potentially were always there such as the imperial presidency and Gosh, you know, I mean, how it might have always been designed to gradually grow into this kind of monarchy. I mean, from the beginning, you know, it's uh, it's a problem. You know, maybe Joseph Smith had it. Yeah, that's what he was angling for. A lot of them did, man. A lot of them did. On the Paul Stewart episode that I just heard today, y'all were talking about a possible Illuminati connection, right? To all this, and I, I, you know, and he had he had some pretty good reasons why and he said it's just a question that needs to be asked it doesn't mean that we have the answer to it or whatever but i just got to hear this really cool podcast called program to chill <laughs> where homeboy over here uh jimmy fallon gong and uh some dude named monty uh we're talking about the history of the illuminati which is really cool and you know it, I, i've heard it enough times and i've read it and I, I i believe it you know their whole point was getting rid of monarchies you know, it was a big part of it. It was like this kind of proto-technocratic, yeah, you know, I don't, you know, kind of idea of running a state or the world by rational scientific means, and you know, just really taking that in vogue category of rationalism and saying that should be, you know, reason should govern human affairs, not kings and popes, right? So when you're talking about uh, if that Cincinnati thing, you know, they were there in some of your earlier episodes, uh, recluse talking about, they were saying something about like some of them were almost pro monarchy. Like they wouldn't have complained if George Washington decided to put a crown on, you know, and it's like, yeah, it kind of doesn't, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to say like, I don't, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm just, I'm just sort of throwing that out. Yeah. There. That like, was, that was kind of like my point. I, I, I don't think that the, the, um, there were interactions. I don't think that the Society of Cincinnati and the Illuminati uh, thought very highly of one another and uh, okay, probably been in quite steadfast opposition to one another. Because again, this is something I'll get into in the latter Cincinnati episodes and just in general. But this is part of the problem with how I mean a lot of this stuff in terms of secret societies and cults and civic orders is depicted in a big part of why I've been trying to do the any mystery babylon series and some of this other stuff because i mean people especially like right-wing conspiracy theorists have always tried to pick these groups as working in unison like a well-oiled machine with yeah. one another and like you're saying it's just it's nonsense i mean they had all kinds of different agendas and i mean even in you know that whole area in bavaria and what have you there was that one um kind of aristocratic Rosicrucian order or was it the gold and something rose cross but god there were like a million of them but this one was a really conservative one it was actually working to infiltrate and destroy the illuminati um 
you know, at the time when they were kind of doing their other conspiracies to infiltrate the Masons for their own purposes. So, you know, again, it's like there, there were a lot of different elements at play with these groups, and it's absurd to argue that they had a unified agenda. Um, and I really liked what you said, Recluse, about how, like, it doesn't really make sense why Skull and Bones would need to go to Germany. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it keeps getting put around, even though, like, you know, we talked about, you know, if there was an Illuminati connection, I mean, it certainly seems like that, you know, it was entirely probable that there could have been former Illuminati living in the U.S. well before Skull and Bones was even founded. I mean, again, there definitely is compelling evidence that that there were some, you know, members who had been involved in the French Revolution, and you know, once it uh, started to go against them with Robespierre and all this other stuff, you know, they might have fled to this, or rather, when Napoleon was restored or came back or took over, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, they might have fled to the United States as political refugees. There's also the whole thing in Haiti with the the one lodge over there what was it the elected elders of cohen or something like that or no the philadelphia and the philadelphians or whatever it was that something related to philadelphia but yeah the point being there were just so many instances where like ex illuminati members could have ended up here well before i mean almost like a half a century before skull and bones was founded so i mean it's like if they they were looking for initiation into the order why the fuck did they have to go to germany it doesn't make any sense <laughs> I mean, there's more likelihood that it would have survived in the states than germany it makes no sense yeah okay that's good yeah because you know a degree you you literally just carry it around in your head you, you don't need you know what i mean you you, you memorize the whole thing mm. That's just, why every Masonic Lodge can flip into an intelligence agency if the right people join it with the right purpose. They make you memorize pages and pages and pages of text, which is a skill you can also use for other things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just anyway. saying, all you need is a dude with a brain that has the degree in his head, the Illuminati degrees, and they can just get oh, on a boat. Yeah, well, I mean, especially the whole thing with cryptography too i mean that's you know just in general that's like such an interesting component of so much of this stuff intelligence work secret societies got I mean, you know, cryptocurrency it's just all kinds of insane stuff but um yeah well i mean we could ramble on about this forever yeah, um, yeah. you know we've got future episodes for that so but thanks, thanks for letting me get my licks in on the illuminati bro yeah 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 no no definitely and like i said folks <laughs> You know, look out for the Society of Cincinnati episodes that are coming to the farm Patreon. There's going to be a lot of uh, great stuff in there about, you know, the relationship to some of these other secret societies and that kind of thing and what their role might have been opposing them and possibly nurturing some of them as well. So it's, it's going to be really good stuff, guys. All right. On that note, as always, I'm going to thank everybody for listening. And with that, and also to, again, thank you guys so much. I mean, for all the, you know, new uh, listenership that's come in, uh, thank you again to True Anon for having me on and um, <laughs> all the additional people that I picked up here and so on and so forth. It's It's been a tremendous blessing. Again, I always want to throw that out there, how thankful I am for all the listenership and uh, guys out there. It's, you know, this is really, uh, it's a dream for me. It's a dark dream, I know, but uh, somebody's got to do it and I do enjoy doing it. So thank you guys again. And on that note, we are signing off for now. Good night and good luck to you all.